How do you do? The Box Office Pulp Board feels it would be a little unkind to present this podcast without just a word of friendly warning. We're about to unfold a cinematic commentary track, made by a group of men who sought to create a podcast after their own ravings, without reckoning upon God. It is one of the strangest tales ever told. It deals with three great mysteries of the internet, analysis, observation, and deconstruction. I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. So if any of you feel you'd not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now's your chance to... Well, we've warned you. Now, to pause and refresh. For your convenience, we have an attractive refreshment stand in the lobby, with buttered popcorn, golden good and hot from the popper, your favorite candies, wholesome and rich, plus delicious Dr. Pepper, so bright and bracing with a tang and tingle unmatched by any other beverage. Enjoy an ice-cold Dr. Pepper at our beverage stand right now, and then return to fully appreciate this bop and a movie commentary track. Enjoy. The mystery of life isn't a problem to solve, but a reality to experience. A process that cannot be understood by stopping it. We must move with the flow of the process. We must join it. We must flow with it. Because Dune is doomed. I'm mad I didn't write a bunch of Dune puns before we started. Like The cover recorder was on for that, so if you just want that to be the beginning. Sure, why not? Welcome to Box Office Pulp, the one-stop <laughs> podcast for movies, madness, and moxie. Tonight, we've got a bop in a movie that asks the tough questions, like, how you Dune? I'm not joking. I've been waiting to say that fucking joke for, like, months now. I just really wanted to That was off. your joke? How you Dune? <laughs> Oh, it's 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 perfect. It's so simple and direct, and you get the point, right? We're doing Dune. Oh, what are we yeah. sitting in the theater with? Are you sitting in the theater with a pencil and a notepad? Like I've got it, guys. My masterpiece. I wrote how you doing, and I circled it five times with a red crayon. And then you tore it off and then ate it. <laughs> it was a lot like Manhunter. I just devoured it in the theater. People didn't know what to make of it. <laughs> I want the perfect joke inside of me. <laughs> I'm, ma- I'm I mad it. now. It is this me. This was a terrible way to start this <laughs> off. I'm angry. I'm disappointed. I'm disappointed in all of us somehow, thanks to Cody. I'm disappointed in myself. You've got two and a half hours to marinate on that feeling, Mike. Soak it in. Anyways, <sighs> I'm your host, Cody. Joining me for this Bob in a Movie are my co-host, Mike. Hey, say hello, Mike. Duncan, Idaho! I wanted yeah. to be the first one to do it. Sorry. Ba-ba-da-ba! Every time Duncan Idaho appears on screen, I really do think of the John theme, John Cena theme. Yeah, you know, if this wasn't a commentary, I'd edit that in there. But that's a lot of work for me. That'd be tough. Be that'd be real tough. Huh. Also, say hello to our other co-host, Jamie. I know every time I see Duncan Idaho in his uh, glistening space armor, I feel a stirring in my terrible purpose. I'm not going to get dragged into these conversations. But are we going to focus on his beard and how it kind of comes and goes? That's a, that's a little weird, isn't it? They call his balls the gods of Dune. <laughs> right. Moving. <on. laughs> I can't compete. I can't. I, 
I, all I got is how you doing. I, that's 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 all in my armor is. Oh, we'll show I came, you the man inside the worm, all right. I came to Arrakis with that in my back pocket, thinking that was going to get me desert power. Desert power. Folks, desert power. That's the drinking game. Every time they say desert power, you got to drink. <laughs> or when they spit, you have to drink like you're taking in their spit. Anyways, uh, the official drink for tonight, folks... I'm really annoyed with myself because I like called mine something stupid like the spice must flow. And then Jamie threw out like eight great names that I could have used. The shots melange, the mentat margarita, the butlerian Jack Daniels, the tyrant God of Arrakis. Jamie thought of a bunch of cool names and mine is just like spice has got to flow. <laughs> so if you want my lame sounding, but very tasty drink, a little bit of prep work as usual, I'm going to have you make a fancy Simple syrup. For this five spice syrup, you're going to need one teaspoon of Sichuan peppercorns, one whole star, uh, <laughs> I always have to pause because I don't want to say it wrong, anise pod, five cloves, one teaspoon fennel, uh, two three inch long cinnamon sticks, a cup of water, and a cup of sugar. So to make this five spice syrup, you're going to toast the peppercorns, the anise, the cloves, the fennel on a dry pot over medium heat. Uh, you want to be stirring that constantly. For about a minute. You just want it to toast. You don't want it to burn or anything like that. Uh, throw in your cinnamon, the sugar, and the water. You're going to cook that on medium while stirring until the whole mix begins to boil and the water mixture becomes clear. Cover that. Remove it from heat. Let it sit for two hours. Maybe a little bit less. I mean, you just want it to be cool. Strain it, and you're good to go. You've got a simple syrup that tastes like five-spice Chinese powder. Uh, it should last at least a month or two in your fridge. If you don't want to make this, you can just get like some five spice powder from a grocery store, but that will not dissolve into the drink as well. So I, I recommend the syrup way better. Anyways, back to the drink. Uh, you're going to need two ounces of black tea, two ounces of ginger liquor, an ounce of bourbon, one ounce of that five spice simple syrup we just made, and a half ounce of lemon juice. You're going to take all those ingredients, throw them in a shaker over ice, shake that up, maybe dump a little bit... Uh, of some five spice powder in there if you happen to have some just to give it that kind of sandy debris look just for a garnish um i actually took a little bit of gold dust and sprayed it in mine so it really had a cool shimmering look to it shake that all up strain it into a glass with ice and there you go you have a drink that's not nearly as cool as the one jamie imagined but it is alcohol hey as deeply deeply disappointing as the naming convention you went with was I will say the drink, when viewed from the top down, actually looks like a rackus, and I think that that is some gold star presentation on Cody's part. That's some art. Yeah. It looked real pretty. Also, the drink is very smooth. It's a little bit like um, a lion's tail if you've ever had one of those. The bourbon is not overpowering because you got that lemon mixed in there. The five spice gives it a little subtle mix of different powders and seasonings, uh, and the ginger liquor. Is, is very kind of subdued, but it does give it uh, an interesting texture. Texture is the wrong term, but it's, it's a little bit different flavor. It kind of rounds everything nicely. Uh, request. So, yeah. Uh, when you take a take your sip of it, I want you mm -hmm. to say, it's time to ride the worm. <laughs> okay, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let me... It's time to ride the worm. Nailed it. That was That was it. That goes in the movie. I really wish that there was, like, a really solid one-liner 
that this movie went out on, like a, like a an, a Schwarzenegger "You're Fired" level line. The camera pans in really close to Paul, like it's on his fucking just his nose and his lips, and he just says, "I hate sand." And then, boom, <laughs> Dune Part Two coming to theaters twenty twenty three. That's the twist. He hated sand the entire time. <laughs> Leto's last to line that. to Harkonnen before crushing the tooth. You're the one who's doomed. Uh. This is why we brush our teeth. So we don't have to worry about gingivitis. <sighs> and then the poison breath comes out. So anyways, we're script doctors. If Hollywood wants us to, you know, polish up some dialogue, maybe, maybe work out some third act issues. Don't say we, I didn't join in. <laughs> Mike, oh, you undersell yourself. I'm sure you could think of some wonderful one-liners for these characters to say. Hey, you're part of Bop LLC. You're legally in on all of this. Oh, oh God, that means I'm legally liable for everything. And on that note, this movie's goddamn long, so we should start kicking it off. Yes, yes. Folks, hopefully you have your drink in hand. Mike is going to provide a countdown for us, and we're going to kick the movie off. We're going to talk over it. You can watch the movie with us. You can just listen to us as a podcast. I am not the tyrant god of Arrakis. You do as you please. You're not? I wish. It's a little too uh, wet and cold in Wisconsin for me to claim it to be my dune. It's wet and cold and gets soggy everywhere. Anyway. One. Two. Three. All right, one more stupid joke before this begins. Cody, if you're the tyrant god of Arrakis, does that mean that we that you banished Click R from the show because he was a machine that could think? Um, kind of on a related note, I took Clicker and I threw him underneath a bunch of clothes just a minute ago, <laughs> so I would not play with him while the movie was going. I didn't want to like <laughs> hear, have anyone hear me clicking Click R in the background. What you had to Get jump out the <laughs> I just had to just bury it in the basement and cover it with cement. I got it. I got. I wish I. It's my I secret wish I, shame. I wish I knew how to knit or something. My hands got to be active. Uh, anyways, folks. Fuck, they just spinners are great. Also, just before we get into this, how confused with the general audience when a horrible god language played? <laughs> I love Dreams that are messages from the deep. And it's not even that the Fremen, is... which would make sense. It's the Sardaukar. They they right, opened the, the weirdest thing they could open. <laughs> it's amazing though. That really set the mood. I was in the theater when I when I saw this, and boy, you get hit with that in a theater with really good speakers and everything rumbles, and it's like, oh hell yes! I was I was one thousand percent on from that line forward. Uh, and then we get this opening, which is I mean, most of Dune is a lot of exposition, but you get this really. Neat. I mean, if I'm going to have someone explain the movie to me, I think this is a great, cool way to do it. It looks neat as hell. It's mysterious. It's beautiful. I'm all about these uh, few opening bits we get here. Yeah. Though, because of the, I mean, I don't think Dune is as complicated as a lot of people make it out to be, but for the complications, creating like an intriguing pull that explains backstory. Just kind of gets you, it gets you interested without feeling like an info dump. It just you end up wanting to know more about what's happening. Plus, we get Batista on screen in the first oh that helps. minute or two, and that's what we want. We're all waiting for Batista to show up. I was hoping he'd be wearing funny little glasses again, but this is still pretty good. <laughs> he still looks exactly like Drax, which amuses me. <laughs> he looks a lot like uh, uh, oh god, I already forgot his character name in Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Is it Sapper? 
Sapermorin. Yeah, he, he looks he looks quite a bit like that without the fun little glasses. <laughs> All right, let's get through some movie folks. Uh, movie folks. Let's get movie through some folks. movie facts here, Who are the folks? folks behind this movie? The folks. Right? All of our Patreon supporters that we don't have. Uh, <laughs> This movie is directed by Denis Villeneuve. Uh, he has become kind of a shining star of sci-fi, I would say, over the past few years. He's given us Arrival, Blade Runner 2049, Dune Part 1. Somehow, and I'm staggered by this, this movie did well enough to get a Dune Part 2. If you had asked me that question at the start of production, I would have laughed in your face and said, there is zero chance this movie gets a Part 2. We're fucked. We're just going to get half a story, and it's going to make zero dollars. And I'm so happy I was wrong. The one good thing about the pandemic. Because <laughs> let's face it, that has somehow had a lot to do with it. Maybe, yeah. I think this movie just crossed $400 million worldwide. Considering the budget, not not a gigantic profit, I'm sure, but it was enough where Warner Brothers was encouraged and said, yeah, screw it, let's do another. Uh, and I think a lot of that comes down to word of mouth, too. People seem like they were very enthusiastic about Dune. You know, it was in the running for a ton of Oscars this year, so... It was probably encouragement to them to say, hey, if we do a part two, more people will tune in. Fingers crossed. I would love it if uh, Dune 2 is very successful and we got more films like this. Honestly, this was a year of a lot of great movies, but... It was! Man, it's hard to... It's it's honestly hard to top Dune. And I hate almost saying that about a studio picture, but... I'm I'm still 1,000% behind The Green Knight, but that movie was just on another plane of existence to yeah. me. That, that movie is like once in a lifetime good love the green knight dune is phenomenal i don't want to take anything away from dune it's just that's not really even fair to have that compared to any other movie honestly dune if i were to compare dune to anything i would compare it to watching the fellowship of the ring for the first time that big potential in 2001 yes just being in awe of the fact that a studio and a relatively niche idiosyncratic director managed to get away with making a movie this big, this heady, and this weird, and America lapped it up. Like, yeah, that that's is probably a fair comparison looking at the history, too, because Dune obviously had the prior attempt from David Lynch that didn't go over well and was never finished fully. You know, they kind of had to come buying two parts into one film and it's a lot like ralph bakshi trying to do the lord of the rings and never quite getting to do the return of the king oh man i want to do more movie facts but we're moving through really interesting stuff they just introduced the voice which is for this is a hard sci-fi movie right like we get a lot of hard sci-fi kind of stuff going on and then they introduce something as fantastical as if you use the right tone of voice and you have the right mental powers you can essentially command people to bend to your will, which is more fantasy than sci-fi. Uh, and not something I think a lot of people expect walking into this film. Uh, back to my movie facts. Our screenplay is by John Spates. Spates is a little bit of a controversial choice, I think. Uh, nothing against him, but he was one of the writers on Prometheus. And people have very strong opinions about Prometheus. He was also on the Tom Cruise The Mummy reboot, which, again, that was kind of taken out of his hands, but people associate him with that picture. Uh, he was also on Doctor Strange. That one was very positively received. So hopefully people look past some <laughs> some of the choices that were out of his hands and think, oh, yeah, this guy's got potential. Well, it's important that this there, is one of the rare jobs. This is like one of the theme. only movies. 
I'm sorry. This is just one of the, like the only movies where John Spates, you could actually say, is the writer of it. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Didn't have say. like eight other people oh. take over his words or just throw out like what the screenplay was trying to do. It's yeah, like Spates Zach was... Penn has one movie and it's Ready Player One. Other than that, he's always written over. Hmm. Uh, Villeneuve also uh, contributed to the screenplay along with Eric Roth who is, I mean, super, super prolific. The guy uh, wrote on Forrest Gump, Ali, The Insider, Munich, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, A Star is Born, Killers of the Flower Moon. Just just for decades, Roth has been pumping out classics. So there, there was a lot of talent writing this movie. Our cinematography is by Greg Frazier. Frazier's had some pretty high-profile partnerships. He's worked with Matt Reeves on Let Me In, and The Batman, which releases in just a few weeks here. Uh, he was with Gareth Edwards on Rogue One, which I, I think most people probably say is one of the more beautiful Star Wars movies, if not like the most beautiful Star Wars is. Catherine Bigelow on Zero Dark Thirty. And this is probably the biggest one in my mind. Andrew Dominic on Killing Them Softly, which is a real stunner to look at. Uh, and, and... This is important to mention, too. He worked on uh, the first season of The Mandalorian. He was the DP for three episodes, chapters 1, 3, and 7. That show is really notable for its use of stagecraft, which is essentially a next-generation version of volume that replaces green, static green screen with gigantic LEDs that can broadcast a smart view of the backgrounds. So you get these really realistic, non-static, in-camera backdrops that can change to add depth as the camera moves. That wasn't used in this movie at all, which fascinated me. I assumed, like, he spent all that time working on it, but he said, we were developing it then, so we, we didn't use it. We used completely different technology. And I was just astounded because I assumed that would be something they would put into every picture going forward, but they were still worried that it was too new. Maybe we'll get it on Dune 2? Who knows? I would say that the technology invented for the visual effects in Dune are almost equal to the innovation we've gotten from rear projection technology lately. The I'm sure we'll get into it later, but the sand screens they invented yeah, is fascinating yeah. technology. Before this scene goes by, I, I really love the scene, the just the pageantry yeah. of it. You could probably write it off, like how important is the scene really, but I love all it says about the Duke. This character <laughs> has these lines right here. There's no call. We do not answer. Like, he's really into it. He does the lines justice. He's saying everything that the emperor demands him to say. He has all of his people out waiting for it. He signs on the dotted line. He's making this choice that he knows is very likely going to destroy him if he doesn't play it perfectly. And meanwhile, he's kind of leaning over to his closest advisors and asking, how much money is this going to fucking cost us? Because he realizes this is just pomp and circumstance for no reason. Yeah. But he plays along. And I think that builds so much of the character during what seems like a fairly insignificant scene. That's why I love not seeing the Emperor in any, in any way. You just get all of this, this representation, how completely pointless it is, and then play it against Ooh. the Duke. And this moment right here where he puts the ring down, and there's that subtle kind of sting to the music, where you just know this choice right here has essentially sealed the entire family's fate. Everything going forward is, is locked in place now because of this choice. See Which, the fun doom. part of this movie, in my mind, is the, the, the illusion of choice. Because we have a character like yeah. Paul who can see the future. He can kind of manipulate it because he can see timelines, essentially. He can see different universes, how things play out. 
but we also have dialogue between the Duke and his son where he talks about like, hey, you're free to make any choice you want. You'll still be my son. But that's not really true. He gives him the illusion of choice, but there's so much expectation with Paul's standing that he knows he can't just say, oh, I don't want to be your son. I don't want to be in charge of things. I don't want to go to Arrakis. By the nature of everything that surrounds him, he's forced into the path of this movie. And there's not as much wiggle room these characters have as they think. They're they're just kind of dialed in, whether they like it or not. Duncan Idol! So you finally got to make a stallion point, and then just immediately, Duncan Idol! Brilliant choice. I don't understand the fan love for old Duncan Idaho. <laughs> like, I, I'll be upfront. I haven't read the books, but Duncan Idaho seems like a fan favorite character. And if you've only experienced Dune through David Lynch's version, Duncan Idaho does jack shit. He kind of shows up, waves a sword, and then gets dunced immediately. He's Barney from Half-Life. <laughs> That's honestly all he does in the first book for the most part. Uh, Duncan in the movie is kind of a 50-50 split between Book Duncan and Book Gurney, who has a lot of his traits, uh, like uh, his brotherly relationship with Paul ported uh, from uh, from, from Gurney in the book. Just to okay. give, give the character a little bit of juge for how important uh, his relationship with Paul is further down the road and the sequels to this and, and the later book sequels. Gotcha. And I mean, the yeah. casting's brilliant because you get Jason Momoa. He's, he's the modern day tough guy with charisma. You know, you can get a tough guy easy enough. There are a dime and doesn't get a big bulky guy who's intimidating, but Momoa is one of those dudes you just watch and you think, Oh, he's fun. I could get beers with that guy. He seen he gives the presence of being a friend and also a guy who could beat you up if you're a dumbass. Instantly likable. Yeah. You can't help it. Uh, this is a good point to go into the cast. Very briefly, we'll be talking about them throughout this entire thing. Timothy Chalamet as Paul Atreides. We've got Rebecca Ferguson as Lady Jessica. Oscar Isaac as Duke Leto Atreides. Josh Brolin as Gurney Halleck. Stellan Skarsgård as Bell- Bellin. I don't even know what I'm saying. Baron Harkonnen. I was doing so well until that point. Dave Batista as Beast Robin. Uh, Zendaya as Shani. And then we had uh, some kind of small roles that are still really impressive for how they stack this cast. JVR Bardem is Stilgar. We just mentioned him. Jason Momoa as Duncan Idaho. And we've got David Dasselchain uh, as Peter DeVries. That guy, that guy had a great year between Polka Dot Man and this. Like, he managed to sneak his way into some of my favorite movies of the year. Did he ever just mind in motion? You just want to go up to that guy and shake him by the shoulder and say, You were DeVries in Dune. <laughs> It's like you got to, you got to be one of those guys. Ooh, okay. Another. I keep I keep wanting to just go through all my movie facts and get them out of the way, and then we have great scenes in between. I love this scene here. Um, as far as I know, I think the scene was added. I don't believe it's a part of the books even. But we get uh, a great bit of drama between Paul and his father, and I like them kind of debating responsibilities and not quite destiny, but futures and choices. And I think this all plays such a big part in the later narrative. It's, it's really a wonderful scene and it's kind of somber and quiet. I love that they take the time to add it in, even though a lot of productions would be rushing at this point to get to Arrakis. This movie, I think takes the first half hour to get to the desert. 
this scene's beautiful. It's great. I love the character drama between these two, the loving nature of it all. It reveals a lot of character. Wonderful they kept it in. Yeah, outside of the scenes with Jessica and Paul, the majority of this isn't in the book. Uh, scenes like this and uh, the scene we were watching earlier, they're, uh, they're uh, condensations of like several different scenes that are throughout the entire first half of the book, which is such a... If this screenplay does... <laughs> This thing does one, the screenplay does one thing magnificently. It's compress very complicated ideas and histories and uh, political situations into just small handfuls of dialogue that gets uh, kind of throw out in scenes like this. I Oh, sorry. Okay. I, I love the way this connects, too, because we have the part where the Duke mentions, I wanted to be a pilot, but when I had the calling, I took up the house. I became the leader. And later on, very subtly, you kind of notice, oh, wait, right, he's the pilot. He takes them out on <laughs> the flight over the desert to go investigate their materials. He shouldn't be doing that, but he wants to because he's always wanted to be a pilot. I like that bit of character that's carried through almost silently, where if you're watching this scene, you know, oh, of course, this is the only way he can live out what he really wants to be, what he wants to do. He wants to be so that much, yeah. hero that's saving people and not like this fucking I mean, kind of bureaucrat Duke character. He's had that hoisted upon him and he takes the position because he has to, but it's not who he wants to be, which I think reflects on the earlier scene we we're talking about where he does all the pomp and circumstance, but it's not him. Uh, that, that's a very interesting thing about House Atreides in general is you look at... Uh, at Paul's grandfather, who was killed fighting a bull, which is such a ridiculous thing for <laughs> a millionaire space duke to be doing thousands of years in the future. Doesn't it kind of feel like... Uh, um, I'm thinking like Frank Miller Batman, you know, like where we find him the yes. first time where he's just in race cars, just hoping for a good way to die, and it's just not good enough, so he doesn't. Yeah, the, the, so for the, this guy's like, fuck it, a bull can kill me. The tragedy of the House Atreides is that this line of high-minded heroes just dying to be, uh, dying to have lived in another age where their valor actually meant something, and they're wasted as politicians and regents, and that gets that that leads to the ruin of each Atreides that we know of. The, the Paul's grandfather, Leto, and then eventually Paul. Man, I, I'm a little distracted here just because uh, we have this wonderful training scene. We don't get a lot of Gurney in the movie. Uh, some people have criticized Brolin for taking this role because it's not out of his range. You know, when you think tough, gruff guy, you kind of think Josh Brolin. But I think because of how limited screen time this character has, it's important to get someone who has already got the established credentials. Like you fucking yeah, bring in Thanos. Center him immediately. Yeah, you bring in Thanos and you know what the character's about. You get an idea that he's kind of honorable, but he'll do what it takes. He's got the passion, the gruffness. You've got the shorthand all in place. You don't need to give Journey 40 minutes of screen time to understand him. No, no. And it's one of those things where you're not getting Brolin for now, you're getting Brolin for later. Yeah. But it's kind of funny in this movie because he just runs off into the desert. <laughs> they just kind of it feels like they forgot about him. Yeah, he and Howard I mean, just kind of disappear. <laughs> Yeah. 
Yeah, it's one of those things that you that's kind of a necessity of the screenplay too. Like I said, you they moved a lot of of Gurney's more colorful attributes to Duncan, so you'd give a shit about him. So you kind of you need a, a, some stunt casting for Gurney so that he even sticks out in the audience's head at all. Yeah. Although this scene is wonderful too, because there's you know the gruffness mood. But you understand his point, right? You know, like he's impressing a very big lesson on Paul. So you're siding with him like, oh, shit, this kid's been way beyond his neck. And this guy's the only one who's going to be straight with him. Tell him like, hey, get your shit together or you're going to die. Also, that line reading of brutal. <laughs> so metal. I hope he didn't have to do that take like five times because his voice would be ruined the rest of the day. Someone has to sample that for a song, right? <sighs> oh, fuck. That'd be cool. Like get your ass to Mars kind of thing. Meanwhile, meanwhile on Getty Prime. Meanwhile in the Blade Runner universe. <laughs> I am much. an absolute sucker for this kind of thing where you just show a completely weird spot and just like, you fucking know what this is, right? It's Getty Prime. And they just have a little text <laughs> outline and you just you just dive into it. It's always fun in Star Wars too when they do that. Like, you're on Kashyyyk, it's the Wookiee planet. And then you just throw you to it. And just the contrast too. We have such wonderful production design in in this film where each planet feels so stark and different from all the other ones we just went from this beautiful kind of seaside resort planet that's very baroque and and kind of dark and gloomy which fits in with the atreides mindset i think to this fucking horror show of a planet like this geiger kind of thing almost where everyone wears these awful weird ass black leather things there's fog everywhere no one has hair I love Everyone that communicates bald. by screaming. I love that baldness is very important to film versions of Dune, but it's always a different house that's bald. <laughs> well, I kind of think, okay, so you have the lack of hair. I think that almost gets assigned to a form of purity in shorthand, right? Like the idea of, you know, they're, they're not soiled in any way, they're shaven, they're clean, they're pure, glistening, whatever. But it's a twist here because the Harkonnens have it and they're like the most slimy, traitorous people in the world. Look at him there, just loving the fact that he's bald. <laughs> and bald the, and huge. The Baron in the fat suit. How, how do you guys feel about the casting of a not-obese man to play the fattest floating fat man? I mean, the Baron's gotta be wearing a, wearing a fat suit anyway because he's so large he can't walk. I also, this is one of those few instances where I think it's actually nicer to large people to not have an actual huge dude as the monster, pedophile, space fat man. And how do you guys feel about uh, the differences from David Lynch's Dune, where the Baron is like a living collection of disease? He's just boils and spewing pus and stuff. This one, he's essentially clean, but just very fat. I mean, very obviously perverse in different ways, but physically not as disgusting. Well, it's going back to like the set design where it's the Harkonnens themselves have this sense of, of cleanliness and and sterilization. But Getty is also feels like grungy and industrial. And even the way they kind of dress is, is very grungy. So it plays off all these different things where they they're not like these dirty monsters, but there's still aspects of them that are, are, are grimy, but 
with this this cleanliness on top of them. It's very Dennis Hopper as King Koopa. Oh, yeah, that's actually a surprisingly good comparison I never thought of. I'm a little distracted right now because we're once again moving into a really fantastic scene. Dune opens with a lot of bangers, which is surprising <laughs> considering we are not on any of the iconic spots from the public consciousness of Dune. We're not on Dune. We're not on Arrakis. Paul is about to have his uh, encounter with the Box of Pain. There's this kind of mystery and danger that's lurking here, which is emblematic of the whole film. It seems like every scene there's something lurking and they're really playing with a larger danger, but not necessarily admitting it. It is fascinating to look at the history of like every single attempt to bring Dune to the screen, and almost none of the scripts have the Gom Jabbar in it. Which is insane because people have latched onto that. I mean, I, I feel like that's one of the scenes that inspired all of Phantasm to exist. <laughs> Pretty much. It's, it's amazing to think that until David Lynch made it iconic uh, in that opening scene, most people adapting Dune were like, no, you don't put this in a movie. This is weird. Well, it's very weird. I think that's why I love it so much, though. The idea you just put your hand in a plane box and you experience the worst pain possible. And if you react to that pain, you will die. And so you have to somehow mentally steal yourself so much you can block out your mind from itself. Like, it's it's a very intellectual concept uh, that's hard to play on film. Like, it, it's hard to express the idea of pain without showing a person, like, losing a finger or something. So it's, it's a weird, tough, challenging concept to show on film. But if you can get it right, there's not a lot that compares to it. And it sets up the themes of this universe so well and so quickly. Like it, it makes sense that this is more or less the opening of the book because this is, this is where Dune begins. Everything before this point uh, in Villeneuve's movie is just place setting. This is where we get into what Dune's actually about. It's it's tough not to get drawn into the scene because it's once again it's this weird mishmash of sci-fi, high sci-fi, and high fantasy. Because this this scene to me is fantasy. We have a witch with magical powers that's testing a prince. I, I mean, obviously that combination works. Star Wars is basically fantasy too, with Star Wars you know space opera kind of thrown in. But it still is always a surprise. Everyone thinks, oh, it's Star Wars. It has to be one or the other. And no, really, it works because it's that balance. I think Dune is that way too, really. Even though it's very serious and it's very sci-fi, you primarily think sci-fi, it works because there's those fantasy elements underneath that really push you through the rest of the high-minded stuff. Do you think I could buy one of those lights on Etsy? Just a floating light that would go around my house and make everything look impressive. I'm kind of obsessed with that light. It's why can't we just have those? Love that They're very both, cool. I love that both Dune movies have really weird sci-fi lights on Calendar. The lights were important. <laughs> That's all the planet cares about. So she's not on screen at the moment, but let's take a second to talk about Rebecca Ferguson. Wow. Uh, as Lady Jessica, she's actually in quite a bit of the movie. I would say way more than the Duke. It's it's kind of her movie totally. in a totally. lot of regards. 
and you could kind of say it's a, in some ways, thankless role. She plays the concubine, but she has her own agency. She's working with, you know, these, these groups of witches essentially. Uh, and it's her destiny. She thinks to bear the most powerful child in the universe that will ever come. So prophecy bear. And she has these moments where she gets the iconic lines. I must not fear. She gets that, those lines herself. I think in the hands of a lesser actress, you would kind of forget this role, even as important it is to the rest of the film. But Ferguson is just a lights-out actress. She is phenomenal in all the stuff she's in. Uh, anyone who hasn't seen Doctor Sleep yet, uh, just the the Rose the Hat is a top-tier character. That's got to be one I think people will remember decades from now as career-defining. She'll uh, always be Elsa Faust to me. <laughs> and we've got just a little bit of that Hans Zimmer magic going on, so it's time for more movie facts. Hans Zimmer, of course, provided the score for this film. Zimmer has either produced or composed soundtracks for just an astonishing number of films, TV shows, games. I'm just going to shout out a bunch of famous ones, but this is barely scratching the surface. Twister, Thelma and Louise, True Romance, The Lion King, The Rock, Broken Arrow, Gladiator, Hannibal, The Ring, Batman Begins, Sherlock Holmes, Inception, Interstellar, No Time to Die. It's bananas how many important, big, iconic scores he's been a part of. Now, you could argue if he wrote them directly. Some people say he kind of makes a factory where he'll hand off maybe to an intern some of the work and then he'll put his name on it. But it's still his school and everything underneath him has come to these scores. So regardless of the process of making it, he's still attached to it and a driving agency behind it. I like the implication that Hans Zimmer is the James Patterson of composers. <laughs> there, there's been a lot of talk about how much work is being done behind the scene for scores. Because if you look at Hans Zimmer, will be attached to a lot of movies per year. And what are the odds he's really sitting down and composing all of them in a marathon? Yeah, there, There's been a lot of talk that he, he's got people underneath him that are doing a lot of the composition. And he might get the credit for their work because they're essentially interns or lower level so they don't get the rights to put their name on it. Danny Elfman's actually been dead for eight years. <laughs> that would explain why we haven't gotten Beetlejuice 2 yet. <laughs> Tim Burton is just working on ways to actually communicate with the dead so he can get his new circus sound. That new I, circus sound. That new circus sound. That new circus smell. So I, I just want to point out that according to Villeneuve, Timothy Chalamet is absolutely terrified of Charlotte Rampling in this scene. <laughs> I, I wouldn't doubt it. I think it. we all are. She gave a very intimidating performance for an old woman with a pointy dagger. She was apparently supposed to take the veil off as soon as the scene began, and they just kept it on. And I don't know if that was to make her scarier or less scary. I think it works much better for the scene, though, that, that idea that I don't have to reveal myself to you in any capacity. I think it works in every production always if a person has a piece of set design on them that they don't take off just for film conventions. Like the Mandalorian, always keep the helmet on, Din. It's, it's just, don't do it, don't take it off. All right, I'm almost through my movie facts, I swear. I've just got a couple left. This is the longest it's ever taken me to get through a movie facts thing because there's so much to talk about in this film. This opening is jam-packed. Uh, our editing is by Joe Walker. Uh, Villeneuve has gone with this guy, I think, for all of his films since Sicario. 
our release date <laughs> pushed a little bit due to COVID. The movie finally came out October 22nd, 2021, a date I thought was stupid because who wants to see a hard sci-fi action film in the spooky month showing how much I know about programming? Uh, the budget for this was $165 million. Pretty expensive, but you definitely see the money on the screen, right? This looks like a very expensive, big production. Uh, our worldwide box office was $400 million as of, I want to say, a week ago. It's just just crossed that. It's still playing in some budget theaters, so it's it's not even out of theaters yet. Where I could be seeing another $200 million out of that total, but pretty impressive. Uh, Dune 2 is currently scheduled for release in October of 2023. Can't wait for that. I can't believe we're actually getting a Dune 2. I've said it a bunch of times, but I still got to pinch myself every time I think about it. We're probably still going to get Dune Messiah when, after the second one, which means the story of Paul Atreides will be told in a movie series. That impossible mountain has finally been called. <laughs> Have either of you watched uh, the sci-fi Dune miniseries? Ooh, I tried to get through the uh, their adaptation of the first book when they were first doing that, and those, yeah, I, I, I could not get more than an hour through it. They just yeah. looked too rough to me. I never even tried. I remember being excited because I came back in the day where sci-fi was kind of known for maybe not prestige, but high-profile miniseries. Like, remember when they did their futuristic take on Oz? Like, sci-fi had a couple of times where they were like, hey, guys, get ready. Sci-fi's actually got some new content. It's going to be fucking cool. And when they gave Never us watched it myself, man. but... Eh. <sighs> yeah. My, my... Some nostalgia right there for, I guess... Uh, I don't even remember when that period was. That was, like, early 2000s, right? That Somewhere was, like, 2001, I believe. Yeah, the thing with the Sci-Fi Channel Dune miniseries that fascinates me is... The deliberate attempt they made to make it more alien and less relatable, because Herbert's dialogue is fairly normal. Like, the characters in Dune talk about like they do in the movie. In the book, or in this miniseries, in the first conversation between Paul and Jessica, he cries out, Bah! What what love do I have for duty? Every morning I eat duty for breakfast and honor for lunch. And then she cradles him in, his, in her arms right. and says, My Paul, sarcasm does not become royalty. No one in Dune talks like that. Well, I'm sorry, the this fact that they wrote dialogue... Like... The fact they wrote dialogue that said, I eat duty for breakfast. <laughs> duty for breakfast... Hold on, I gotta oh mention this. God, this is a running thing I love throughout the movie. Paul has to physically touch environments. He has to get a feel yeah. of the place he is. And I, I love that because it's happened multiple times throughout the film's uh, film. Here, he's saying goodbye to his water world. He's got to feel water for a last time. He feels grass similarly. Once he gets to Arrakis, there's a very intentional moment where they see Paul kind of sifting sand in his hands. At the end of the film, he has to put his hand on that rock right before he has his final duel. And all of these moments kind of allow him reflection. The last one, they actually let us into his mind where he gets to see alternate forms of the future. And by doing so, save his own life. 
I, I like that little touch of him having to make that physical contact with a place. Considering the important uh, the importance of environment in Dune, I, I love the connection there. Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing from the books that's touched up upon by various characters throughout the story of whether or not it's a person's relationships that define them or if places are what truly leave their fingerprint on us. And it's, it's something that's that the the answer is never quite reached throughout any of the books. And it's just, uh, there's a whole nature versus nurture thing that starts with just, you know, the events of this book and the Atreides family and eventually, like, throughout the series, branches to the universe and humanity itself. Like, the the descendants of Paul wondering, like, well, since we have power, should, shouldn't we just be dictators to make the universe stronger? Like, is, isn't it cruel to be kind if you have this kind of power? Like, sh- shouldn't the entire universe be Arrakis because Arrakis made the Fremen so strong? Which is, I think, a, a great point shown in this movie. I-, I saw some people criticizing Dune before it even came out that it was just like a colonial wet dream. You know, it's that idea that <laughs> these white saviors come to the desert planet and bring order, which is a terrible misreading, right? <laughs> Anyone who that's, watched the film knows the exact that's, opposite, I think. Stick around right, for yeah, these books. <laughs> That's yeah, it's it's someone who only got the trailer and just assumed they knew where things were going. Uh, and we see in the movie, too, the Fremen aren't portrayed as stupid savages. They're people in a rough environment that have wisely adapted to the environment they're in. And they have their own customs that have kind of been guided by outside forces. We have the Bene Gesserit admitting they've gone in and seeded all these ideas about who the savior of the planet will be. So they 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 adhere to a religion that's been tampered with by outsiders. Considering Dune is really, I mean, the the original book right is is supposed to be mostly parable right for international relationships. It's all about the Middle East and different countries messing with that territory without understanding it. If I understand the book correctly from synopsis, yeah, pretty much, yeah. So that that criticism was interesting to me because it's very easy to make a movie like that. We have thousands of movies that way where you kind of have the white hero character come into a new environment and become their master. But there's a lot of repercussions in this film series that show that's not necessarily a good thing. You know, they're not trying to portray it as that's how it should be. That'll make an entertaining movie. Uh, that's the, that's the great irony of the fact that Dune inspired star Wars. <laughs> There's uh, a sand crawler now. <laughs> uh, Dune exists to be one giant middle finger to the traditional colonialist white savior superhero story. And it inadvertently just pushed that trope even harder <laughs> into everyone's <laughs> head. Well, another thing I find fascinating, too, is I'm assuming this is the starting point for a lot of current day political intrigue where there are various houses competing against each other. And you have maybe fans of one house versus another house. I'm thinking mostly Game of Thrones. Oh, there would be and no just, Game of Thrones without Dune. Yeah. Right. Game I of mean, Thrones feels like the really... fantasy version of this, right? Yeah. I mean, it all stems from War of the Roses, but yeah. yeah. Historically, yeah, that's probably the, the best comparison, I guess. But 
I can't imagine how much of sci-fi or various other genre books, TV, movies wouldn't exist if Dune didn't exist, despite the fact that Dune is so goddamn hard to pull off in any sort of media. Oh god, it's like there are so many obvious ripple effects you can look at. And then you you look at things like what we're looking at right now, the ornithopters. Herbert just decided one day, what if spaceships looked like insects? That thing that was not a concept in sci-fi before he brought it up. <laughs> Think of how much the original Star Wars affected how space technology and spaceships looked in movies compared to what we were seeing in, like, Solaris and 2001 A Space Odyssey. And think, yeah. Frank, that came out, that idea came out of Frank Herbert's head in the <laughs> 50s, in the flying saucer days. That's bonkers to me. That is nuts. And it's even weirder to me because we've seen other films take that idea, right? The insectoid kind of ship. That was the main design point for Prometheus. In Prometheus, that ship was supposed to look like a bug. Uh, Avatar, I want to say all the ships are a little bit kind of shaped after organic things. You know, you make everything kind of look like a dragonfly. And yet, somehow, this version we're seeing in front of us, these ornithopters seem very fresh to me. Yeah. Like the the hyper-rotating wings and the long, skinny chassis of the planes. It seems like a design point that should have been done a million times throughout sci-fi, and yet the version we're watching, to me, seems new. Also, this kind of stuff. Okay, so the city... I'm sorry to interrupt, but just the city design here. This is very much a design you would have seen in the original Blade Runner. Just just think of, like, you know, uh, the headquarters that, that the droids are manufactured in. It's that large kind of step pyramid temple look. We have the exact almost design here, and yet I don't see that and go, oh, it's just rehashed standard-ass fucking sci-fi. Yeah, but it's – Villeneuve, I think, calls back to a particularly particular aesthetic that existed in 70s sci-fi, yeah. which has like a there's – a, there's a sense of brutalism to it. Mm-hmm. In, look, speaking in, of which, uh, look at this armor. Yeah. But you're talking brutalist. Look at this weird-ass, giant, blocky concrete armor these guys wear. I love it. And you wouldn't see that in a Star Wars right now, I don't think. No, you wouldn't see that anywhere. That's why I, I think it's cool that Villeneuve is pulling from Dune for the design, obviously. But he's also bringing in a lot of his own ideas and his own personal aesthetics that harken back to similar things. So Dune walks away feeling fresh visually because it has like this, this brutalism. It has like this Aztec design. It has this uh, Persian design and, and, you know, also, yeah, a lot of like Ridley Scott sci-fi in there. Yeah. I think there, that's, that's the thing. There's Scott, there's Scott running all throughout this, which makes sense. I mean, the guy was such a fan. He made a sequel to Blade Runner. So Scott's is gone. Yeah. Yeah. Also, I know this isn't the movie we're talking about, but Blade Runner 2049. <laughs> w- what a film. What a picture. You have your commentary for that. Yeah. Like, I was Villeneuve... blown. I couldn't believe that they made a sequel to Blade Runner that is somehow different enough, but stands at equal height to Blade Runner. As a huge, huge, absolute giant nerd for the original Ridley Scott film, I went in just thinking, oh, nothing can be as good as this thing I loved as a kid. 
And I was astounded that he made a movie that, that like, I cried when I watched Blade Runner 2049. That movie oh, yeah. emotionally gets to me in, in a way that I didn't think a Blade Runner ever could again. I, I just assumed this couldn't match those levels. And I, man, <laughs> anything he does, I'm for just after that movie alone. The other ones are amazing, though. Sicario, the, the tension in that movie, that's, that's insane. It's, it makes you on the edge of your seat the entire time. Uh, Rival 2 is really beautiful. I, I love that movie. It's very sad, I think, but I love it so much. And then you have things like Prisoners, which I didn't love as much as the other pieces, but I can't deny it's an incredibly well-made film. Uh, Incendies is very good as well. Like n- Nowhere near as much uh, buzz as some of his other films that have gotten, but that was the first thing of his I saw. That just knocked it out of the park for me. Also, going back to Blade Runner for just a second, how bonkers is it that Blade Runner 2049 not only is good, but maybe better than the original? In it's some the ways, it is ever made, honestly. Yeah, like it's weird. Like it's, that, it's shocking. The original has been in my, my top five it. movies since I was a teenager, and without a doubt, I like 2049 better. Which, like, again, I wouldn't... by default, I think that might make it the best movie ever made. I wouldn't say I like one more than the other, which is a hell of a statement on its own. You would never say that about a legacy sequel because they're so beholden to their original, typically. But I would say 2049 goes in different directions while still holding true to the spirit of the original, that it stands in a completely different realm while being a sister piece. It's it's great. You can love both equally. It's the world, but it's a completely different beast. I don't think you could ever say there's been another sequel or spinoff that reaches those same levels. And I mean, there have been some incredible sequels out there. God knows people love Godfather 2. Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 is pretty good. But this is something else. This is something entirely different where it's, wow, he made something that's new, stands apart. And I, I love both more than I can express. I think what makes it so magical is the fact that 49 isn't a sequel to Blade Runner. It's an answer to Blade Runner, which is something that's gotten me very excited for whenever Villeneuve eventually does Dune Messiah. Because Dune Messiah essentially acts as one gigantic response to Dune. And he's proven he knows exactly how to pull that off, both with storytelling, with visuals. I There's going to be something very special, I think, whenever he is able to go full circle on Dune the way he wants. That's a really great point. I was uh, <laughs> not that connected. I was I was listening to the commentary for Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3. And in, in there somewhere, or maybe one of the special features, the director talks about, or one of the screenwriters talks about, hey, man. If you if you make fun of a sequel for not reaching the same heights as the original, you don't understand what the fuck a movie is. Like the idea of making a sequel is you like this thing, here's a derivative version of it. Which is mostly true for sequels, right? You're you're taking those things you enjoyed and trying to spin them out a little further. They really by definition can't hit the same heights because you've already had the thrill enjoyed discovering all these things taken care of. You you just You've already had the hit. Right, yeah, you're chasing the dragon. The idea that it's a conversation, which means you can say something completely different as long as you use the yes and kind of approach to it, 
means you don't have to worry about that. You don't have to do all the same things over again. You just have to have enough of a callback for people to go, oh, right, yeah, these things are tangentially of a kin. Wow. Yeah, the, great, uh, okay. the, the greatest sequel to Creature from the are. Black Lagoon is The Shape of Water. Very true. Also, wow, this scene too, this, this was breathtaking. The visual idea that, okay, we have to hide Paul, so have him stand among this hologram. The stillness of it. Dune gets marketed as an action flick, but not really a giant amount of action in this film, right? This is this is Almost kind of not. like the mid-movie, mid-movie, that's a joke. I mean, we still have like an hour 48 left. Action beat is Paul standing very still as he's hunted by a deadly robot. It's more of a scene almost out of a horror film. I really don't want to compare anything to this to David Lynch's Dune. They're very different films, but I really hate the hunter-killer scene in David Lynch's Dune. (laughs) (laughs) One thing, too, to point out, the way this movie can jump around freely... So we just had that scene where he says, it's a hunter seeker. And then we cut to the Harkonnen in the wall who has died. And someone says a line basically explaining what happened. They didn't have to show the footage of them unearthing the guy, hunting for the guy. In a lot of other movies, that would be several minutes of footage, right? It's, it's a whole scene to find this guy. In and the this book, one is just like, like two ch- fucking chapters. Right. They just jump to it. They just, here's the guy. He's dead. Fucking figure out what the fuck happened. Another totally thought, Jesus, this thing. (laughs) This is a good point to talk about tone, I think, in Dune. This is not typical little Star Wars. I've honestly actually enjoyed most of what Disney has done with Star Wars since they've taken on the property. But in their films, when they introduce a weird side character, it's something like the Porg, where it's, it's, it's basically like a happy duck thing. You know, it's something kind of cute. Or even if it's an ugly monster, it's a pig man that you love anyways. That was a goddamn nightmare creature we just saw. (laughs) This weird abomination spider man that can apparently understand human language and eat slop out of a bowl. Just thrown in there. Just, 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 it has like a second of footage. It's, whoa. That's the tone of doom though, right? It's, it's much more serious. It's fanciful in a dark way where you can take these macabre flights of fancy, but you don't have characters that are really enjoying themselves. It's a very grim, serious take on the stakes that they're presenting in the film. You don't have Oscar Isaac saying stuff like, they fly now! You don't have that kind of levity that you would maybe get in episode nine. Yeah, I, I, I would... Which isn't bad. I think it's actually fairly rare for movies, right? Like the idea that the studio didn't say, could you put in a couple of jokes? Can you make it lighten this up a little? They were very serious throughout this whole thing. It's it's got a consistent dark, gloomy tone. Which they allowed is amazing. this to be a drama. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, granted, this is happening, but my dune. I like how it turns out the trick to uh, Harkonnen not being ridiculous is just cover up his feet when he flies. That's it. It helps a lot. Though we do get the scene when he flies up to the Duke later. While eating, and that is pretty fucking hilarious. So, uh, Jamie, you watched uh, the the dream, uh, the Sleeper Must Awaken documentary about the '84 Dune, right? Yes. My favorite bit of that was just <laughs> when they were trying to cast the Baron, 
And they go to Orson Welles and like, we want to offer you the role of Baron Harkonnen. And they did this over the phone and they just heard from the other side of the line, you mean the floating fat man? And then he hung up on them. What I love about that is that that means that... He read it. He read oh. Dune. He was very familiar with Dune. That means that between Hodorowski talking to him and Lynch's people talking to him, he completely changed his opinion on Dune. <laughs> but again, they weren't offering him to go to his favorite restaurant, so... There was no well, one. Then he had in the gained offer. another like hundred pounds. So, <laughs> uh, before we move away from the Mentats, I want to talk about that because that was a bit I thought was really interesting from having not a great background knowledge on Dune. Like I'd seen David Lynch's version, so I, I was aware of it pretty much exclusively through that. So going into the movie, and you had these guys who could just roll their eyes in their heads and spit out gigantic numbers or whatever else living computers was interesting to me then you look up the lore online and from what i understand in the world of dune people put all their trust in computers which led to a different type of war and it was so bad that they've just banned outright thinking machines you can make people think like machines but you can't do it the other way around in this universe which is such a fascinating bit of world building that they don't include at all you gotta look that up on the side Oh, yeah, that, that's the thing I was the most shocked by in terms of exposition, because this, they managed to go into pretty much everything that's relevant to Dune in this first chapter, except except making the distinction between Mentats and Benny Gesserit's clear, because they do very similar things, but are completely different and at war with each other. Uh, there, there's an entire, like, uh, like rivalry between Jessica and Howitt in the book that doesn't actually go anywhere, but it's just there for world building. And I, I, I'm impressed by the fact that none of this comes across as particularly confusing, because you just see early on, okay, Harkonnen has a spooky man. The Atreides have a nice spooky man with an umbrella. Okay, I guess everyone just has a spooky man who does math. <laughs> everyone gets one. Although it's it's interesting because uh, the 1984 Dune also does Peter Device. Like they, they have a different version of the evil Mentat. Uh, but that that's a really outsized performance, right, in the Lynch version? And Lynch decided that all the Mentats had owl eyebrows. That was their <laughs> distinguishing feature. Well, he went too. like the, the, the liquid they drink, kind of the, the wine, whatever it is, their brain juice staining their lips. Whereas you don't really, you don't have that as a feature of this version of Dune. Thank God. It's definitely better to cut out all of the drugs other than spice people take in this universe, because there's actually a lot of them and they all do the same shit. <laughs> Side note. Um, until this moment, the first time I watched this, didn't know Javier Bardem was in this movie. <laughs> oh, really? He's on the poster, too. Like, they put a pretty big version of his face on the poster. Although, one, okay, I, I can't leave this alone, because, one, it's actually a shame. I mean, the 84 version of Dune has Brad Dorif, which, how can you ignore that? But he has my favorite line of that entire movie, which is the, 
is by my will alone I set my mind in motion. <laughs> is by the juice of Sappho that thoughts acquire speed, that lips acquire stains, the stains become a warning. Is by my will alone I set my mind in motion. Is by will alone I set my mind in motion. It is by the juice of, like he says it twice to really set it in, like how fucking important is what he's saying. Yeah, and it's just a guy getting high moment. and just being like, man, this fucking wine is dope. I love that. I honestly, I, I love that in Dune. Uh, David Lynch's version of that character can't help but be iconic. They, just everything they threw into it was too good to ignore. I know that came entirely out of Lynch's ass, but they could have put in the Mentat version of the Bene Gesserit prayer. I, I like that that exists in this universe. They have their own slightly less impressive prayer. That they also recite when do, doing spooky doings. But I, again, I, I made this big point before about how important it is everyone in Dune think they're in control of their destiny, despite the fact that everyone subscribes to the fact there's a destiny, which would <laughs> kind of cut out personal choice and power. So I, I really like the Mentats being like, I have done all this. I used my brain to make it happen. Meanwhile, everything around them points to the fact that no, this was going to happen, and you just did the thing you were supposed to. It was it was fated. You thought you were doing something special. Okay, we just missed a pretty important political scene, and I love that the movie takes the time to go into those things, because it's what makes Dune Dune. The idea that there's a thousand different people with a thousand different opinions, and you somehow have to play all sides to get to the end result you want where your family doesn't die. In this one, it's, hey, we want to keep exploiting your planet, but we're not going to murder you like the last guys. Does that make us buds? And they go, yeah, buds enough. And the Mentat's like, all right, that's really the best we can hope for. It's going to take a while, but if we keep doing this, eventually we're going to have something to show for it. Which turns out to be a disastrous idea because the Harkonnens aren't going to wait fucking 30 years for you to develop good relationships with the people you're exploiting. It's wonderful that we have this movie that's really about the political intrigue between all these groups. I wish there was more of it, and I understand they couldn't get to it all. But that's what makes this movie exciting for me, because you have so many different groups and opinions you don't know necessarily who's going to fight their way to the top. If this were a TV show, you wouldn't know. They, they could mask that. Here, it's pretty obvious Paul is the main player, and he'll eventually take on that Jon Snow kind of I am the main character role. But I still like it nonetheless. Yeah, that is one major thing they had to excise just to make this a story that would fit in even two movies. Is uh, Dune is about 60% plot, 40% schemes. And there's a mind-boggling amount of Plans within plans and feints within feints and secrets within lies within riddles that are nestled within the Hark the Harkonnen's invasion of Arrakis. And, and you can't show that in two hours forty. You, you really no. can't. There's n for how much they have to explain about multiple planets and a, a weird emperor design playing favorites one against the other there is so much they have to get through exposition wise they can't get to the subtleties of those relationships they try and bless them they they get some of it in but you can't do justice to what's on the written page i'd imagine yeah i would say this screenplay does a very good job of deciding 
what things to keep and what things to chuck. Yeah. Uh, One thing I saw earlier today was there was a story, um, part of the book, there's like a whole chapter dedicated to a feast that happens shortly after this scene where the Duke invites various people in for a fancy dinner. And at that point you get to see all the opinions of the people from Arrakis and how they are either in favor of the Duke or against the Duke. So you get like water mongers who are pissed off that he's trying to make a more fair world or their prices might get hurt. Uh, You have people that are impressed by kind of how honorable they're approaching these things. It would have been an amazing scene, but I can't imagine they have 15 minutes to throw in on top of everything else in this movie to do a kind of banquet scene. Yeah, that was Frank Herbert's favorite thing he ever wrote. He loved it so much, he recorded a vinyl pressing of him doing a one-man <laughs> audio play of the banquet scene. What? And was he, so put out, cool. he put out a single? Yeah. <laughs> just him, him reading Dune? Yep. You can find that very easily. It's It's awesome. It's just Frank Herbert doing a one-scene audio book for Dune. Because he was and so I, upset that that wasn't in the Lynch version. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it's it was – no one knows if it was filmed, but it was scripted for this, I believe. Oh, that would have been cool. I believe so, yeah. And I don't know if it was – I haven't read through the script they, – they, the shooting script they released online, so I don't know if it would be in that because it is the shooting script or uh, if it was just never made it uh, that far, far advanced. I'm I'm a little torn because I think a scene like that adds a lot of complexity to this kind of movie and fills it out, but it would have really messed with the flow of the film and maybe not added much in the long run because they can't follow up on the local merchant's opinions, right? We're we're still going to end up with a Harkonnen moving in fairly swiftly to get everything within three hours. So a scene like that would seem nice, but there's not enough follow-up connective tissue they could add on top of it to flesh it out and make it seem worthwhile. Well, my, I think that it's ultimately for the best that the majority of that stuff was excised, not just for time constraint reasons, but also a lot of the scheming and conspiracy subplots that are in Dune aren't really there for their own sakes. Herbert uses a lot of that stuff as Trojan horses to move in exposition and world building. I like what I was saying er uh, earlier about how there's like a whole subplot about like a rivalry between Howitt and Jessica that comes to the surface because Leto is informed that there's a traitor in the house. He knows it's not Jessica, but... He wants the traitor to think that he thinks it's Jessica, so he'll make a a bad move. But he can't tell Jessica about this scheme because he doesn't trust her to be a good actress. And he wants her Uh. actually upset, which I love because that's also an episode of King of the Hill. (laughs) I mean, drama-wise, that's fantastic. Like, there's so much juice you can get out of that. Absolutely none of this comes into play after the fall of Har- uh, of House Atreides. The worst that happens is whenever Gurney sees Jessica again, he tries to kill her and is then immediately informed of what's really going on. It establishes mm-hmm. nothing plot-wise. All of those sequences are just in the books. So you, for Herbert can show you what a Mentad is and how a Mentad operates and 
what a Bene Gesserit is and how a Bene Gesserit operates. Like, that's the first time we see Jessica use the word on somebody, or to, to use her voice. Mm-hmm. And we realize, oh, she's actually that powerful. She can control a Mentat. That's how powerful a Bene Gesserit is compared to a Mentat. It's like almost like comic book storytelling of, okay, Iron Man, like a Thor hit Captain America's shield. So that means that's how strong Captain America's shield is. Like a lot, <laughs> a lot of the political maneuvering in Dune is a smokescreen for just nuts and bolts establishing of stakes and how things work. So whenever you're doing that, you're either showing that visually or you're just using a lot of shorthand, then there's not really a reason for those scenes to be there anymore because their purpose is served elsewhere. I'm sorry, I want to interrupt because there's something important just happened visually. This movie does an incredible job showing scope. Uh, Some of the best in recent memory of showing how big things are. It's very easy for movies to say, it's a big thing, and you don't feel it as an audience member, right? I think uh, Guillermo del Toro and Pacific Rim really nailed it. He he managed to figure out if I put the cameras at human eye level, you're going to tell how big the robots are. You're going to know these are huge. In Dune, we just had this great moment where they show at a distance one of the spice collectors and you see all the stones and all the shit around it. And then you have a character hold up his, I don't know the right term for it, the space binoculars and zoom in and you get that very up close view. And a lot of filmmakers, I think would have just started with that view. They wouldn't have had the establishing shot of these crawlers necessarily. You would have just gone to the part where the rescue ship breaks in close up. But this one lets you know, these dunes are huge. The plume of dust coming at them is huge. We zoom in. Oh, these are very big. And then we get all these parts where they show the interaction of the ornithopters copters, uh, with the people. So they're doing a lot of work to show scale. People next to big things and then zooming out to show you the big things look small. We saw a lot of this earlier, too, where you'd see the armies of, like, the Atreides standing out in the desert next to troop delivery services that look small compared to the desert. And the camera is panned down at the human level and shows you how much height there is above all the people. The people look like ants. I think the movie does a really spectacular job impressing on you. (laughs) These people think they're important and they're in a vast landscape. They're, they're just, they're smaller than ants. And what I love about this, this is like my absolute favorite sequence in the film is you get all of this scale and all this distance and all this epicness but it's all to serve then when Paul steps out, you shrink down to this tiny macro level. Wait, we see things from oh, Paul's view. We just saw that. Away. It was on his shoulder and he pans up to see the device fly away. We get things from Paul IV. But it's just for that small moment, the first time he touches sand. Damn the spice, by the way. Damn the spice. I'm so <laughs> glad that spice. line stayed in. What's well, good too? We get this moment where you're like, you would believe in the Duke. The Duke gives a shit, and oh dear God, we're in tremors now, but worse. And just the God, I love the sandworm theme so much. The bass pounding in the Zimmer score—that's an important thing. When you're in the theater and and the sandworms are coming up, you feel it. You feel those trebles. It's one of those things where it's a shame people didn't feel safe in theaters. It's not a shame that they didn't feel that way. It's a shame the theaters weren't necessarily safe. 
Yeah. Because seeing this movie on the biggest screen possible, the loudest sound possible makes such a big difference. It's still a delight in home theater, but the technical aspect of seeing these things is, is, is so impressive when they're utilized the way they were intended. Get together. Is that, does that count as Mickey Mousing? He drops to his knees and there's that loud boom kind of bass. <laughs> is that modern day acceptable Mickey Mousing? I'm not opposed to Mickey Mousing. I think that's actually become kind of a topic where people are like, oh, it's lame. I think at all times the score should be illustrating exactly what's happening on screen. I, I'm a fan of stingers. I, like it. I love Mickey Mousing. That's, that's movie language. I, I don't even call it a gimmick. I really think that uh, score should be done that way more often. I think they can't because they're under such pressure to get a score out in like a month compared to what they used to, you know. You don't have money for a full orchestra necessarily in a lot of films, and you don't have months and months to really deliberate with the director and see a rough print and work through it as the scenes are being filmed. So you, you, you have some ideas, and hopefully they fit to the movie well enough where you don't have to do a lot of tailoring. I love it the other way around, where the, the score is so tailored to the movie, it couldn't fit in anything else. If you listen to a soundtrack and it does all these weird frills, you'd be like, why are they doing that? Oh, it's I, because... I like when a score interacts with the visuals on screen. Exactly, yeah. I'm, I like that. They feel of a piece, in my mind, that way. Also, oh, this visual is so cool. The sandworm, when it comes up, has to shake things, and it will sink you into the ground. You'll be vibrated into the dirt because this thing is so big, it fucks with physics around it. Yeah, they really sold the scale and power of the worms in this film. It is such a brilliant uh, such a brilliant decision to barely show them to, to leave them as mostly just vibrations and a giant gaping a mouth in the desert. It's so terrifying and, this and bit godlike. Too, where we have a religious passage just the passing of the worm. A character has to like basically pray when they see the worm. That idea that it causes reverence <laughs> to the, the the people of the of the world. Although I will say, how how do you guys feel about the actual design of the worm itself? I love everything around it. Personally, I like I, I like the design a lot. Yeah, I love the the ten the the tendril teeth that just come up. There's something it's very Sarlacc pit, isn't it? Yeah, there, there's something about how eerily thin the teeth are that's very disturbing. Well, it's not like it needs the teeth to chew, right? It's kind of like a leech where it just it just has them so nothing can go back up. But in my it's it's a shame because the iconic version of the Dune Worm in my mind, again, as someone who hasn't read the books, is that kind of three level mouth, like they're the three paths that close together, and the worm is a little bit missile shaped in a way very much what we got in the david lynch version of the worm which is kind of just like the paperback cover version of the worm i miss that i think it's a great design although way overused it's it's basically the exact same thing we got in the demo gorgon in stranger things but it's so iconic it's a shame they couldn't reuse that design because to me that's just so perfect i wouldn't want to use anything else this is good it's a worm for sure but I get why people make like the butthole jokes, right? The spiky butthole things. I just want to say the only two things that Frank Herbert thought that other people improved upon with Dune were the book jacket illustrations of the worms 
And, and David Lynch's idea of the spacers as weird baby men in jars. <laughs> Those were the two things, the, like the only two things that were an improvement upon Doom. I respect that. So one thing we haven't mentioned to this point is the lengthy attempt by Jodorowsky to make his Dune. And what stands out to me, I think his version would have been a mess. I don't think he ever would have gotten the funds to make the movie he had in his mind. So we've gotten a disjointed, low-budget, janky version of Dune that he's outlined. But the thought he put out in the original outline of Dune that he had strikes me as maybe the most captivating start to a movie possible where you just pan past a spaceship and you, you go for minutes and minutes. It's, it's kind of like the idea of star Wars where you have the star destroyer going past the screen. It seems like it goes forever, but in this one it goes even longer and you keep panning and there's a space battle outside of the ship and you see spice in the air and you see pirates trying to take the spice and defenders blowing them up and you basically zoom past an entire war and you realize that's microscopic in the scope of the ship, and the ship is microscopic in comparison to the conflict we're about to see. It's it's something like, man, that level of scale probably can't actually be captured. No one would want to sit around for like a 10-minute sequence like that. But on paper, doesn't it sound like the most impressive thing anyone could imagine? I think that's Hodorowski's Dune in a nutshell. On paper, this sounds like the greatest movie ever made. I don't think if any of this would actually have worked. No, yeah. I mean, visually, it's the only way you could express something like that. In a comic book, you could pan past several several panels showing, oh, the spaceship big. But it would never give you the same impression of actually being forced to sit down for five minutes or whatever and seeing a pan happen and more and more detail being exposed to the viewer. It's hard. I think Dune has those moments where if you tried hard, you could express something no one's ever seen. But it would be incredibly expensive. And it would also be very challenging. A lot of audiences would reject it. And I don't think many people would see it as brilliant. They would see it as indulgent. You you would just have a handful of people that really get, oh, shit, that's what he's after. I love it. Which is too bad. I think it's fascinating that most attempts to adapt Dune drop the religious angle Mm -hmm. and either go with they focus super hard on the political angle or they try to just do dune as a regular space opera hodorowski was the only director to hone in almost exclusively on the spiritual aspect of it to the detriment of the actual point of dune which is that all this is bad (laughs) but you can definitely see how it would affect a guy like hodorowski yeah, it's interesting to me that Villeneuve is the only one who is clearly building to, hey, Paul is Jesus is actually not good. Yeah. Although I will say, as as a person who's not religious in the slightest, I'm more fascinated by the idea that you cannot extrapolate religion from politics, that unfortunately those two things that are separate are not in any way separate. Uh, and, and going off of that, we have the Sardaukar homeworld where we see people crucified upside down so they can bleed into these pools, which will then be used to make crosses, kind of an anointment on these battalions who sit in the rain. We have this weird throat chanting. What? This is the most we get of this planet. It's this one scene. It's this one conversation. And you could blink and miss most of it. I think I went to the bathroom for this scene when I was in theaters. And wow. 
what there's a, there's an entire different universe that was just exposed of these religious blood zealots. I know. I love how Seleucus Secundus gets talked about in the book so much, like it's Mordor, yet there's not really all that much that happens on the planet. It's just kind of just patter to make the Sardaukar scarier. I love that Villeneuve uses his one shot of that planet to actually deliver on that promise and make it fucking the mouth of hell. It's terrifying, right? Just the rain. All these guys who have no problem with it. They're fucking killing who knows who. Those might be volunteers, people they just picked up and threw in the fucking crucifixes. It, guys are happily getting blood anointed. It's it's like a weird communion scene. And you know what it's, it looks it's like? terrifying it, and fascinating. It looks like what hell would have been an event horizon. <laughs> <laughs> I feel that, yeah. Filmed with less shaky cam, though. Also, to go on a book tangent for just a moment, my favorite thing about the Sardaukar is that later on, uh, Harkonnen lets slip to uh, one of his nephews, like one of the most tightly guarded secrets in the universe, that Lucis Secundus is actually a prison planet. That's where all of the Empire's prisoners go. And the planet, he's made that prison planet so unbelievably horrible, the Emperor realized that he'd turned them all into warriors because of how bad the planet was. <laughs> Whoopsie doodle, I made Australia Plus! Which, make, which is what makes them, like, the arch enemy of the Fremen, because they're cut from the same cloth. Like, the Fremen have been made honorable by their tough planet. The Emperor turned the Sardaukar into psychopaths by putting them on an inhospitable planet. That's, that's really cool. I love that. Um, sorry, I got to back up just a scene. It's too late now. You're going to have to rewind the movie and the commentary is going to be all fucked up. So I'm going to keep talking. So the times <laughs> won't line up. This is just a nightmare for the listener. If you go back to the last scene, we have a great conversation between Lady Jessica and the Duke. And I just love the contrast in their acting styles. Like, these are two very accomplished actors, and they're approaching their characters so differently. The Duke says his lines, and he doesn't necessarily make eye contact. He's kind of looking down, but holding a steady gaze. Like, he's got a conviction in what he says, even if he can't necessarily face the fact that he's asking his wannabe wife, not his concubine, Hey, are, how much do you love Paul? Lady Jessica, in the meanwhile, is scanning. Her eyes are constantly moving in that scene. Even as she's saying, of course I love Paul. I'd do anything for him. Oh, wait, you're asking me as like a member of my religious fraction what we what we do for Paul. Uh, so it's very weird to see a true conviction from d the Duke. Like a very straightforward, yes, son good, doing right thing. Plan bad, but we do plan good. Versus, fuck, 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 fuck. Okay, how do I do this the least bad? Uh... There's a calculating, searching thing from Lady Jessica versus the Duke's, fuck it, I fucked up, but I am set forward on this path. <laughs> it's just wonderful acting between the two. Very understated. You know, no one's throwing their hands in the air and shouting lines, but it's a very tense, big, dramatic scene. And they're asking big, dramatic questions of each other. And it's delightful. Anyways, we move past it now. So, <laughs> sorry, folks, who rewound to watch that scene. I don't know how many minutes you just missed, but you're never going to get this line up again. It's all lost like tears in the rain. It's gone. 
But we are moving clearly into a different phase of Dune with this moment right here, where the Duke has uh, <laughs> just turned on his shield and realized, oh no, things might be bad inside the house. You know, before I was going to criticize the fact that the Mentat mentions there are spies in the house, and I should resign because I didn't capture them, and the Duke says, well, find them. To Jamie's point, there's whole subplots in the book about them thinking we found the spy, maybe think Jessica's a spy, they're excised from this adaption. Oh, it's, oh, Here, it's also... Though, we get, like, the spy was there all along, and it was hinted at, and we should have known better. We just weren't necessarily thinking about the spy. I mean, I was because I saw David Lynch's Dune, so I knew about the tooth. But for someone who came in fresh, this would be a surprise. Oh, yeah. The uh, tooth. The tooth. I really do miss there being a gigantic explanation of the tooth of a guy saying it 50 times in a row. <laughs> It's it's fun how it's fun to look at how Yui is portrayed in the films where he's more of a, a standard like a betrayer character who comes in you know during the 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 important moment in the story it's like oh it's that character from earlier he was the traitor all along and then he's disposed of and that's kind of it one of the things that it's really interesting that Herbert does in the book is tell you chapter one, Yui is the traitor. See, yeah, that would be good. I, I, I subscribe to the idea Hitchcock presented that a surprise is fun because it shocks you the first time. And after that, it feels underdeveloped. Whereas suspense is great because you know that bomb's going to go off. So you're nervous the entire time. If you knew he was the spy, I think it would be better for the audiences. I don't know where you'd fit that in. But that idea, he is the spy, and you marinate on that for whew, uh, about an hour fifteen, be pretty good. Well, that's the biggest difference between the book and any adaptation. It's possibly the most interesting and creative thing Herbert does in the book, and it's also the thing you can never do in an adaptation, which is... Dune tells two different stories. It tells the plot of Dune, but also in the framing device between chapters, it lets you look at the events of Dune as they'll be seen thousands of years in the future after the religion of Muad'Dib has strangled the universe. And you see, yeah, there's that idea of myth making just from reading quotes from the book itself. How important the idea of a myth is, and that the person writing the myth has to understand the myth themselves when they're living it, or else it won't work. Yeah, and there's very frequently a juxtaposition between whatever like sacred passage or quotation opens up chapter and what you actually reveal, what's revealed from that character's eternal thoughts later. Like with Yui, Yui is the Judas of the Muad'Dib religion. He is known for all eternity as the despicable Yui, the traitor, the, the ultimate betrayer of House Atreides. And then when you spend time with Yui, you see that he actually really loves that family and is morally conflicted and is only doing this because it's what his Benny Gesserit wife would have wanted. Oh, I didn't really... Yeah, I don't think they ever say anything about his wife being part of the Bene Gesserit. She's the one who trained him against conditioning so that Jessica can't tell that he's lying. Oh! But you get a, a, a lot of the... A lot That's of a fun the, detail. 
Hmm. Yeah, a lot of the fat in Dune is just explaining in minute detail how <laughs> all of this stuff can work because Herbert sets up so many very specific rules that he then violates. <laughs> it's not a plot hole. Shut up. But uh, also, I want to I want to get into this. So when I think Dune, I actually do think action film, which is funny because even watching this, I think action film. This is the closest we get to action. This is not an action movie. It's 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 presented as a series of onslaughts and massacres and a couple of moments briefly where characters can fight. Even when they do fight, the idea of a shield in this film is if you swing real hard at a guy or shoot at him, fast things get deflected. So killing blows have to be slow and purposeful. It's it's like the knife kill in fucking Saving Private Ryan. It's got to be very deliberate that you kill a man. So in this movie, when we have fights, either it's characters who don't have shields, which I feel like they did just to show the fights happening faster, mm-hmm. or they're fights where they have to be very deliberate chess matches, which doesn't feel like frantic, big action action, like high adrenaline action that we're used to if you were to watch a Fast and the Furious, for instance. It's made to not be traditional action. It has action in it, but I think calling it an action film would make people upset. If they tuned in thinking this is an action film, they'd be like, you fuck, you, you lied to me. This is not action. It's not the Peter Berg Dune we almost got in the 2000s that was going to be a ball-to-the-walls oh, action thriller. Oh, Which you could do, right? Looking at all the material good. here, there is enough room for this to be that kind of action film. You could make this Michael Bay's The Island very easily. And yeah, all I mean, better be for Villeneuve not doing it. Yeah. But just, just think, like, what the pressure is when you're saying, hey, I want to make an R-rated $170 million, two-and-a-half-hour-long sci-fi action film, and then you're saying, hey, the action is not going to be important at all, and it'll be brief. Like, if you were to ask me, how much action do you think is in this film? Like, five minutes? Ten? You know, if you're counting, like, helicopter crashes, it's a little longer, but... <laughs> the action is 60% helicopter crashes. <laughs> it is. And again, this isn't a complaint. It's just astonishment on my end that most studios would not have the guts to commit something like that because that doesn't say profitable in any way. Most movies have that idea, hey, you got to have a shock at, like, 60 minutes and your movie's going to be 100 minutes long. And we're breaking so much of that here. Even this, we have Duncan Idaho going to town in what's the highlight action scene where he has to slowly slit a throat and he kind of dances ballet like around these things. And a lot of it's shot in long masters, right? We, we don't have like close shaky cam. We don't have Jason Bourne style editing. It's, it's presented as here's two actors going through the choreography. It's not meant to necessarily be exciting, but you're supposed to understand it all. It's storytelling purpose action. It's not just because this is that genre, rare though. Isn't yeah. that weird? It's very weird. Yeah, I mean, honestly, this I can't believe I'm about to um, compliment a major studio, but <laughs> say it, do it. Currently at WB, I will give them credit. They definitely are doing some unexpected big studio stuff that's filmmaker focused. Yeah. This is this is a stupid thing. Was this movie made with Legendary? I can't remember if this is Legendary yeah. involved. Because remember Legendary would, was pissed. I would I would honestly say Legendary is the driving force in that. That is very the films true, yeah. Legendary's yeah. been behind are typically 
very good. And even though they partnered with large studios, typically better films than you would get if Legendary yeah. wasn't involved. You, you are you are very correct. I, I do think uh, a big factor in that is just WB keeping their hands off. At, at least they have in the past couple of years. Yeah, they let it happen. Yeah, I don't know if that was mostly because of AT&T running the show and not knowing how a movie studio was run, but... <laughs> so this one just snuck under the rings. I would, I would love to know about to studio on interference that. on this. I mean, there's, right? there's no way around it. Well, even this scene, Duncan Idaho ends with just yelling at these guys, to hell, dogs, and they just leave. <laughs> like, they, they just have another chance for him to show what a badass he is, and instead they're just like, these guys are so fucking scared of Duncan Idaho, they just leave. That's so effective. When have you? When did you ever see Han Solo just point a gun at some stormtroopers and say "leave," and then they run away because he's scared? <laughs> uh, also, beard watch. Duncan Idaho is now clean shaven. He's he's lost beard throughout the movie. He started with a full beard in his previous scene with Stilgar. He had like a shaved beard, and now he has no beard. I like the implication that the Fremen shaved him. <laughs> he's getting more and more Fremen as he goes. Also, this scene, too, again, I'm astounded. We had an action scene where there's a giant all-seeing laser that is chasing this dragonfly helicopter around the city, and it's shot in wide. We we didn't have a single shot inside the helicopter of Duncan Idaho freaking out and jerking controls like we're seeing right now. We didn't have that in that whole long stabbing shot where there was actual danger. They want you to really know what he's doing. In the Coherence is valued more than excitement which is not a design principle you would see in any action film, I would say, past 2000. So you can tell that uh, Yui is... That's, like that's extreme. I should say there, there, are, there are a lot of, like, there's, there's a lot of, like, B-level action films that still value, like, a long take where you fucking see everything that's happening. Studio terms. In studio terms, you want something shaky, you want something frenetic. I would say direct-to-video action actually has a much better grasp on showing choreography than most mainstream action. Oh, I'm still convinced 90% of the reason we all love John Wick so much is we can actually see the fucking action. Yeah, it's perfect sense, right? It's exciting. Jesus, that's that's Keanu Reeves doing shit. Awesome. Also, that line there, they don't even make much of it, but I believe uh, the shorter, fatter Harkonnen is supposed to be deaf, and that's why yep. he got the unusual line delivery. A thing they don't really explicitly state in the film. Yeah, it's just, it's expressed through sign language. Right, and it's supposed to be more extreme here because, obviously, the voice controls people. So there's still danger. There's still a guy who can kill you because you can't control him through voice. Also, I have switched to champagne and pomegranate juice, which I felt was an appropriate drink for the show because champagne, the drink of fancies, and pomegranate, the forbidden fruit of kings. Which I should have drank first, but, you know, whatever. I, I had the other one on ice, so here we go. <laughs> Wish you had a Carconan drink that was just sludge. Just sludge. Just fuck- That's half the drinks I make, but I don't tell anyone about. I call this the squeeze. The squeeze. When, when part two comes out, I'm going to have to make one that's like half sand and one that's half sludge. You got to make one with fa- for fade. <laughs> I'll make some truly awful drinks next time. Don't worry. Oh, uh, so, it's weird to compliment dropping a character from a story, but I am so glad they're saving Fade for the second movie. Yeah. Thank God. Is, Do you think he's going to show up in a metal Speedo? 
He yeah. better. Played by Harry Styles. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not even opposed. Yeah, do it. Go all the way. New Sting. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's something I really love about this adaptation, that e- even though he really doesn't do that much, it's nice to see a version of Dune where Bistraban is actually a memorable heavy. and not Very just scary one. and clearly a dipshit, right? Like, he doesn't know how to lead, he just knows how to destroy yeah, because even reading the books, you forget that he and Fade aren't the same person. <laughs> so it's nice that we get one movie for one Harkonnen uh, nephew and one for the other. So, Jamie, as the only one of us who has read the books, do you have uh, a kind of fan casting in mind for who Fade should be? Because I've, I've seen said- rumors recently that Robert Pattinson's in line for it. I said it as a joke, but now that I'm thinking about it, Harry Styles would actually be perfect for Fade. Right, because Fade is supposed to be, like, the alternative messiah, right? He's supposed to be godly, in a sense. So I imagine He's physically he should be... Yeah. yeah. And to be... Okay, this is one thing I wanted to mention before. At the very start of the movie, we see Paul nearly nude. Like, he's just in shorts, he's in sleeping wear. I don't understand the attraction for Chalamet. I know I'm not the target audience, really? but he seems like a very skinny scrawny guy so i look at him like handsome face the body creeps me out like eat a fucking <laughs> sandwich dude that's the power like, i understand i can understand i could uh, i guess so you just I can understand like every like teen heartthrob i guess i'm i'm looking at like jason or uh, <laughs> jason isaacs <laughs> oh, yeah. oscar isaac i mean <laughs> are you kidding me fucking nothing against him isaac. either what a hunk but <laughs> oscar isaac look at him here like that that seems like a typical pretty goddamn hunky dude like i can see if people said that's a handsome guy I'd be like well yeah no everyone sees that fucking straight guys or not you see it i look at shallow man i'm like something about him creeps me out have that guy fucking but- put on like a couple pounds of fat you're comparing two different classes of dudes. Yeah. Yeah. There's I'm a very and then there's Hold on, hold on. Though. I want everyone to understand I'm a very normy straight dude. I'm very vanilla. <laughs> so I don't understand a lot. You barely do missionary. That seems confusing you. and sexy to me. It's real exotic. I want everyone at home to know that my dick is just for show. I you it's just come, barely you just come there. in a jar <laughs> and then throw it there. <laughs> I'm like fucking Migs from the Science of the Lambs. And that's me thinking I'm spicy. Uh, I will say... <laughs> Who are we talking about? You were... You were... Really uh, having some hot takes about Chalamet. I you guess really so. I, I see Chalamet and I'm just like, I wouldn't fuck him. I don't know. What am I missing out on? So, I feel very Jerry Seinfeld right now. I don't know. <laughs> What's the deal with his penis? What's the deal with this skinny twink? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> it doesn't make sense to me, but I'm not, again, the target audience, it doesn't have to make sense to me. Uh, one of my favorite public Twitter freakouts of all time was when about two years ago, a lot of people on Twitter got really, really mad that their girlfriends wanted to fuck Timothy Chalamet. <laughs> <laughs> It just gave me so many flashbacks of, man, I hate JTT so much. <sighs> that Enya's playing. On a totally different note, the new Jack Reacher uh, on Amazon, <laughs> phenomenal. And that dude, that's a hunk. 
that's a great looking dude. That guy's fantastic. I killed. Amazing. It's so amazing that he turned out to be like amazing, and he was like Aquaman on Smallville. Got his star in like American Idol. Uh, what was the comedy show about football he did? Because I, I saw him from that, and I didn't even recognize him, but he was like, you know, just a real egocentric guy that transported Oreos up his butt. He's just, you know, like a comedy douche idiot. He's just Hawk to me now. So then you watch that show, I was like, oh, god damn, this guy's amazing. It's like the most muscular Sherlock Holmes could imagine. And then you think Thanks. to yourself, this is why people were mad when Tom Cruise was cast. Yeah, any uh, totally unrelated, folks. If you want something that's a thousand percent different from Dune, Reacher on Amazon is honestly a phenomenal show. You know, what? I'm gonna really watch good. it now because uh, because of you, Cody. Good job. It's like you solid pulp, me. man. It's it's really like it has an emotional core, great characters, uh, a good little kind of pulpy mystery plot. Phenomenal. It's it's so good. I couldn't believe my eyes. And the fucking Tom Cruise movie. As Herner Verzog is the villain. I don't understand why I like the Amazon version more. I just think that Leto saying all of this to Harkonnen before time. <laughs> the whole thing, he's going on the rant. Uh, so before he dies, uh, <laughs> I was looking up quotes from the book earlier because I posted to Twitter one of the drinks I made for the show. And one of the, the things that threw me was, you've heard of animals chewing off a leg to escape a trap? That's an animal kind of trick. A human would remain in the trap, endure the pain, feigning death that he might kill the trapper and remove the threat to his kind. Where, which, ooh, immediately makes you think of Oscar Isaac sitting there naked, pretending to be out of wits when he knows he has to wait for his moment to blow up this poison tooth that will kill him and hopefully all of the Harkonnen lead, I lead military, whatever you want to call them, their ordinances. Which is a great quote from the book. Really love that idea of separating humanity from an animal and the idea that there's a presence of mind of, I would destroy myself. I will have the presence of mind to not panic and hurt part of me. I would kill myself to kill you. I mean, that's the, kind of like every nuclear arms race, right? The idea that, hey, man, I've set things up. So if you hurt me, I'm going to kill you right back and then everyone will die. And in typical Dune fashion, it's not really made clear if that's even a good idea or not. <laughs> well, no, it's not. It's not the books. I, I, I would say most media shouldn't be passing judgment on some of the concepts they throw out. They throw them out and let the audience decide, hey, what's the morality here? There shouldn't be a judge telling you or else it becomes preachy. So well, the idea that it's just here's something extreme. How do you feel about that is impressive. Well, that's what I love about the entire Dune franchise, regardless of the uh, the roller coaster quality of some of the sequels, is Herbert never really answers the nature versus nurture question. I mean, hell, fucking God Emperor of Dune is all about the question of, hey, is it possible humanity actually needs dictators? And that question's never solved. It's still 100% 50-50. <laughs> So uh, one actor, actress we haven't mentioned yet, Sharon Duncan Brewster. We just saw her a second ago. Huge role in the movie. Really phenomenal work. That idea that she's beholden to the Emperor, but she still recognizes that there's something wrong. The fact that she's accepted him on the Fremen is shorthand that she is noble in a way. She understands the bullshit and will play with it. 
but it's two-sided enough to say I will not be consumed by it. It's a really interesting character, probably one that's overlooked considering the amount of star-studded casting we've already discussed. Really great character and great acting from her. Yeah, this version of Kynes is definitely a step up. Make, making that character female was such a good decision. I was about to say, yeah, yeah. that was that was a gender flop too, right? Kynes was, was a, a man in the, the original yeah. novel, right? Kynes is one of 20 old white dudes in Dune. It was, it was a very good idea to spice that up. Well, I want to get into that too. So there's the idea, and Dune we're seeing in front of us, obviously deviates from that in quite a, way, uh, quite a ways. There's an idea in fantasy stories that <laughs> there's set ways they should be told. Everyone should have like an English accent, like a high English that shouldn't be Cockney. And everyone should be somehow very waspy, which is insane because it's a fantasy sci-fi story. Why, why should it be predominantly one race over the other unless that's a story beat? So it, it's nuts to me that, to think that Dune should be all white guys. So I love the fact that Dune took the time to throw in people of different ethnicities throughout the entire movie. It's the way sci-fi really should be. And we should get away from that model, the Tolkien model of how you represent sci-fi. It shouldn't just be like Anglo-Saxon. That's a mistake. And there's no reason for it there. Who wrote down the rules that it has to be portrayed that way? How you doing? (laughs) Jesus Christ. Fuck you. I have won the commentary. Cheer me. <laughs> and, and and also I the mo- the the film. We just missed a really important beat from Paul. I'm sorry. Ch- uh, changing up so many ethnicities also just adds this at this extra layer of deconstructing the the white savior trope on top of yeah. deconstructing myth, deconstructing religion. Which also just plays to the themes of Kynes as a character even more. Like, for all intents and purposes, Kynes is the actual hero of Dune. Kynes is the character who's been quietly trying to terraform the planet their entire life there. They're the one who actually did come from the Emperor. Yeah, and didn't take them over. Kynes became one of them. And, and, walked both and she's worlds. not projecting herself as the leader. That's the, the important thing. The thing that people complain about when they watch something like The Last Samurai with Tom Cruise, where he shows up and goes, well, I'm the white drunk. Time to take over the samurai. I'll be the last of you. You don't have that in this movie, right? If you take her as the primary character, which would be a great take. But I think what we're seeing right now, Paul complaining that complaints the wrong term. Paul is freaking yes. out because he realizes he's been turned into a pawn to essentially enact control of the entire universe for a cause he doesn't really believe in and that he's almost powerless to escape that route. He's, he's stuck to it, right? Yeah. That's, that's the interesting thing about where Paul is in Dune is he's such a Frankenstein monster. Like it it would be a completely different story if the Bene Gesserit wanted the Kitsok Satarok to be created specifically so he could get control of Dune or he, so that he could, you know, become the next emperor. All that shit's Paul going off script. The Bene Gesserit just want the Satarok to consolidate their own power. Because at the end of the day, that's all any group wants, regardless of what they're telling you. They just want 
their increasingly small circle of friends to have power for as long as possible. And Paul is a complete some, dismantling of that. There's some weird gender politics going on, I think, under the hood for that idea. Because there, there's the complaint that Paul is a male and they only wanted women. Which the, the movie kind of sets up is they wanted someone subservient who would follow the rules. And the idea that it's a man, he's a loose cannon, is maybe g- dated. But without having read the books, I can't say if that's the intent Herbert put out. Herbert's politics are very interesting. Herbert was by no means a feminist. He was fairly socially conservative, and I believe was a practicing libertarian. But he <laughs> was very, very fascinated by female power. It was a, a thing, like everything in Dune, I think it was something he was ambivalent on and didn't really have a a pro or negative feeling, but he was very, very pa- fascinated by the good and ill that a matriarchy could do. Cause that's all like the later sequels are about. Like when you get into like heretics of Dune and shit, Te- technically mm-hmm. the Dune, you, the story of humanity ends with a universal matriarchy. If you follow into the Brian Herbert stuff that, you know, his son was doing. Oh, huh. okay. So, so you probably know more than I do about that. Oh, here's like the cutest animal in Dune. Like the one <laughs> fucking gimme for a cute animal. Who's still sweating, which I love. Even the mice It's a giant, sweating. sweaty, veiny rat thing. <laughs> so, Jamie, you know better this uh, better than I would on this. Um, the sequel novels written by Herbert's, I believe his son wrote uh, the, the final novel in the series. W- was that based off of notes that Frank yes. left behind? Or yes. was that kind of like they just had the series in his lap? He's like, I, I could write something. Uh, well, it's a bit, a bit of both. Uh, Herbert left uh, a thousand page of a thousand pages of notes and story ideas and outlines when he died. That was adapted along with a lot of uh, just original ideas that Brian Herbert and his co-writer had. Okay. Not that it makes a difference, really. <laughs> it's a fantasy series, so it's not like one mind really perseveres through the whole thing. But we're always interested, right? When it's it's one preserved author's take on a whole universe. That's why we only respect the canon that specifically J.R.R. Tolkien came up with and was enacted through the notes of Christopher Tolkien. If Christopher Tolkien made up his own wholesale story, he'd be like, that's bullshit. Which is stupid because it's all fantasy. Like, it's all made up. That's all equally (laughs) fake. Yeah. I think a better comparison would be kind of the Cthulhu mythos, where obviously H.P. Lovecraft set up most of it. But then you had all sorts of his friends kind of continue it on once he passed because they realized, hey, there, there's stuff you can mine here. And that became more popular maybe even than the original stories. Apropos of nothing. We don't have to talk about H.P. Lovecraft here. We've got a whole other can of worms. I mean, it is actually... Hey, it's, can of worms! Hey. It's um, also kind Duncan of... Duncan is clean-shaven. Shut up. It's also <laughs> kind of a uh, microcosm... I mean, for the story that Dune is actually telling throughout the course um, of about religious figures, it's, it's we treat authors all the same way. I mean, everything we... Yeah, he's the god of this world. We, His word means everything. We create a religion out of everything, so the author is god. And then when other authors come around and continue on a story, it just mytho- mythologizes it even more. And can and we can, you know, take it or... or take it or leave it and then one becomes more canon than than the rest which is also how religious texts often work or it continues on becomes this uh interesting not 
bastardized version of, of it, but kind of this game of telephone version of it, of the original text, which is also how religion grows. It's, it's very interesting. Yeah, well, that Dune becoming mind... an explicit course says very, is very poetic. <laughs> well, that's true, because of all the things that came after Dune that just lifted from Dune and made it more palatable, commercial. But, Mike, what, what you mentioned is kind of an interesting point to me, because you see it happening in real time, I would say, right now with Star Wars. Yeah. George Lucas has retired and said, hey, fuck, I'm done with this. Other people will write these stories. And so now you have the old guard who say, hey... None of these stories count. I only believe in the Star Wars novels of the 1990s because that's what I grew up with. Zahn is my god. <laughs> and then you have people <laughs> who who would have factions amongst the sequel trilogy where they say, it's bad! Well, except for the stuff uh, Filoni's doing. Oh, that Clone War stuff and uh, the stuff he made. That's pretty good. I'll take that. And it's interesting to see the interplay in fans who are really be just becoming Puron fanatics. Uh, maybe zealots would be a better term for them because they take these things, they fight so desperately. You can't go a day without Twitter having a freak out about The Last Jedi, which is insane to me because, God damn it, that's a movie. Like, just, just a movie. A movie I really like, but not one I want to devote that much time thinking about. And things have come out since then. That, that's the funniest part about every new Star Wars thing, apparently deciding the fate of Star Wars once and for all. It's like seeing a religious text writ live, isn't it? Like, you're seeing all the disciples kind of argue who was the closest to God and who should be able to write the course <laughs> of the novel. Who makes the Bible? Which one of the... Who's oh, inspired the most by God? It's it's like we're we're living through who's who's better, like John or Paul. It's a little insane, isn't it? It's it's weird because oh, like it's I, I watch just, Star Wars and I think, hey, this is a fun. Someone dumped a bunch of toys out and people had a good time. Event, and that's as far as I want to go with it. As a lifelong Star Wars fan, no one depresses me more than Star Wars fans. It's it's the fucking bitchy fanboy version of the Inquisition. Yes. <laughs> I apologize. This is far and away from Dune, but that that's idea it. of the text and the author being God and his Bible are fascinating. And I think true to this day, everyone says they're not necessarily beholden to religion, but they find replacements for it in the weirdest spots. Oh, that's a, just, a, that's an integral part of the human brain. Like that's something that's, I think is going to have to be bred out of us through centuries, not, you know, not decades or, or, or ages. Like we're, we, we've got to have some other outside thing that's outside of the out of our normal lives that we we can debate about in that way we shall be hey, baby. there's always nihilism as i pour a new drink satanism <laughs> alcohol is pretty good too folks uh, also for this drink you're gonna want about two ounces of pomegranate yeah. liquor and you're gonna want about a half ounce of orange juice uh fresh squeeze best but you do what you gotta do uh, and then Fill the glass, at least four ounces with champagne, more or less to your taste, and ooh, baby, you got a stew going. <laughs> okay, you mentioned the Star Wars uh, tie-in novels earlier, and that reminded me of my favorite stupid detail about the later <laughs> Dune novels. Is it is it the clues of Luke? Uh, Luke, I'm sorry, having multiple like U's in their name. Oh it, yes, there's it. <laughs> 
in one of the very last Dune books, I believe this might have been one of the Brian Herbert ones, uh, there's a clone of Paul who battles an evil clone of Paul named Paulo. They, Dune okay. has its own Luke. That's that still less so dumb happy. than Luke. I love, okay, two things I really <laughs> love right now. We just had an action scene where it was um, a reversal of what we saw earlier with the Sardaukur come down sneakily. But the Fremen already know they're there and they've hidden under the sand and they take these dudes out. Obviously, they're not successful, but they get that element of surprise that we see that throws the audience for a loop too. And it's it's kind of a double twist. Then we have what is a surprising moment for Duncan Idaho. He is gently playing with a bug, just letting it walk in his hand. The kind of respect for life. And then he goes into warrior mode because he knows something is coming. It's it's a cool thing for this character that he's supposed to be a poet warrior, right? And we've only really seen through the movie so far, he's a warrior who understands not fucking up the indigenous people. He has a respect for them. I like that they find little silent ways like that to expand who the character is and his thought process. Well, that's, uh, that's interesting. That's one of the things, uh, like we were talking about earlier, they borrowed from... To interrupt, Earth. I really love this moment too. Before we get into your point, <laughs> this part here where he holds a knife up to his head was apparently inspired as uh, a thing he used to do with his own son. Like that was a way oh. they kind of like show I love you back to each other. Like you would hold a hand up to your, your your forehead like that. So he incorporated that into his character, and that was a bit that he suggested to the director. Sorry, <laughs> yeah, go ahead, Jamie. Sorry, that, that that is such a Jason Momoa thing. I love that. But um, uh, that's an interesting. Like we were saying uh, earlier, how a lot of the stuff from Duncan Idaho was kind of lifted from Gurney. The whole warrior poet minstrel thing was gurney shtick like you see a little bit of that with patrick stewart's more yeah. theatrical gurney in, in i forget in that movie did he did he play a, a flute at all a fife is that I, just star trek i think no there is there is an actual space guitar that frank herbert invented <laughs> that I, I think i think that there's like a set photo think, of brolin i think there's a scene it, in there but, yeah, yeah. I think it's in the director's cut. I remember. Holy but, uh, God, I just realized this is insane. Duncan Idaho, uh, spoilers, is about to die. There's going to be 40 minutes of movie left after his death, which is insane to me because you think this is the big ending moment. You know, this is Luke losing a hand to Vader. And it's there's a lot left. Sorry, to your point, Jamie, you were, you were in the middle of it. Uh, I shouldn't well, interrupt actually, you. Actually, that actually feeds into what I was saying. It's I'm glad that they did borrow some traits from other characters to gas up Duncan a little bit more to make this death sting more and feel like more of a reversal of expectations. Because that is Duncan's role in Dune. In the book, you never really see much of Duncan before he dies. You hear a lot of characters talking about him because he's already left for Arrakis when the book opens. And people keep building up Duncan Idaho, the greatest warrior who ever lived. And then whenever well, you meet... Which isn't that idea of myth-making, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's very... You see, you see him framed entirely from how Leto and Paul remember him and talk about him. And then whenever you meet him, he's kind of just a dude who's <laughs> bored, who doesn't really have much of a personality because he's a swordsman and being a swordsman is literally the only thing he knows. And then he gets drunk and mouths off to Jessica, and then you don't see him again until he, until after the fall when he comes to rescue them, and then immediately dies. And the moment we're about to be seeing here, where Paul sees Duncan, like 
like fall defending him at that doorway that ends up becoming like a big moment in the dune series because that memory gets seared into paul's memory and becomes part of their religion like he's not just some guy who's really good at sword play anymore he's duncan idaho the man who held the door that makes a lot of sense because it seems like a lot of this is how we present actual facts how we mythologize things how we make them bigger and story-wise that's something we're going to see i think with Keynes here where her death feels like something the audience would mythologize because it's such a big important deal even though no one else alive witnesses it and can eulogize it yeah that's another great change because Keynes just kind of goes out into the desert and dies in the book. I love that she's given an action movie hero death, which again is completely unacknowledged by any other character. It's it's a Samson moment, right? Because they capture her and she used the last of her strength to pound on the sand to bring the figurative walls down. She brings the sandworm up and kills everyone along with her. Like if we're gonna have the audacity to take care of me, one of the true believers, my God will take you with which i like i i feel like if you're gonna have a failed mission because she you know is supposed to report all this to the emperor i'd like this like it's it's not a death in vain it's her reaffirming her religious beliefs dying the way she determines she she has agency in her death essentially the cards are stacked against her and she gets one last time to say fuck you and that comes right on the heels of that great added moment that the screenplay puts in of her proudly saying, like, I am a Fremen, I am from Arrakis, which is an interesting interpretation of the book's opening lines, which is like a passage from Princess Erlon with her talking about Paul in the past sense and saying, regardless of anything you read in a book about Paul coming from Caladan, his his time was the beginning of a new empire, and his place was Arrakis. Which again, like, goes up into the whole thing of, okay, what is your home? Is your home where you were made, or was your home where you found yourself? Is it possible that the worst place you've ever been to is actually your home? Because that's what made you what you were. Oh, that's a really interesting thought. Kind of like a, a nurture versus nature kind of thing. Like, are, are you genetically predisposed because you were born on the water planet to be different than the desert people? Or is it the fact that you chose to live among the desert people and understand them more important than what you're maybe genetically designed for? The idea that there's, there's an important choice in what your preference is overriding what you were born with. I look at the Harkonnens who are built to lead and rule and conquer. And based on the evidence we get from the characters after they leave Arrakis, they did a really bad job of it. They didn't even count the Fremen. <laughs> just, just real assholes. Yeah, didn't didn't approximate the Fremen even close. They didn't like, take account into anything happening around them. The Harkonnens are actually very, very bad, bad guys. They're just very tough. They can kill people, so they, they win. Okay, so before I said this wasn't an action film, in the theater, first time watching this, this was one of the most tense scenes I've seen in an action film in quite a while. I think, uh, despite what I was saying earlier, this may not follow all the 
practice of modern day filmmaking for action, exciting, engaging filmmaking. But it still works really well. We have an idea where the Ornithopter is most of the time until it disappears and we're not supposed to see it in the sandstorm. But we know the threat level around them. We know what could happen. We've been warned several times. If you land in the desert in one of these, you are a dead man. It doesn't matter if you have the suit on you. This is not an environment that you can survive if you don't know what you're doing. So all the groundwork's been laid perfectly for this moment where you're very tense. Like, I don't see how they can get out of it in any way unless they fly through it. And then we get the the repetition of, I must not fear, fear is the mind killer. There's really iconic lines being made concrete and understandable to the audience by seeing them employed once again in the face of death. And we get this wonderful bit, too, where Paul sees a timeline where he makes a friend with a guy he's eventually going to kill in the real world. This guy, this guy seems so important. James seems so important. They lay out this idea that he's going to show Paul the way. He's going to teach him about everything he needs. But because Paul has seen that future with that character and learned those things, he doesn't actually need to rehear those lessons. And so it's okay later when he has to kill him because he's already taken from him what he needs. He's exploited that character and he's been put on a different path than what he saw. It's really interesting time travel kind of logic, but I I, I like what they did. It was confusing the first couple times I saw it, but I get it now. And all of that's just from Villeneuve and not the book at all. Like I look, that is such a great economical way of explaining how Paul's prescience works. Because that's a really difficult thing to explain as a concept. That there are, it's this isn't just a character seeing the future and getting visions. This is someone who's locked in a hell of multiple converging timelines that are constantly blinking in and out of existence, depending on his actions and the actions around them. And it creates such a amazing twist to end part one on uh, of revealing to Paul and the audience that, ah, fuck, I did not, I'm not actually omniscient in the, in the way that I thought, <laughs> like, I don't really understand how this works as much as I think I know, I don't know anything. It was very interesting because that's the character of prophecy, right? We see him throughout the whole film. And then we also get the idea, Paul can derive prophecy. He sees it. So he knows it, even though he's already told us, I don't see the future. Exactly. I see a hint of what could be. And in the end, they tell us, Nope, Jameis is dead. He, he chose differently than what Paul saw. He Paul got what he needed out of that character without actually having to live through it. So that that's fine. That character's dead. We saw versions of a better version of that character, and maybe that made a better Paul. So we traded places. Jameis is dead, but Paul lives, and that's more important. Which is a weird thing to put a worth on a human life that way. But it's it's kind of what the movie is presented in this case. But it doesn't necessarily make the conclusion that it's a good choice or a good solution because paul is already worried that in the end he might be the one to spark off a war in his father's name that kills trillions of people across the universe so it might be the way things play out but it doesn't mean it was the right or just way and i like that i like the confusion too because you can't predict anything you've seen a prediction of the future doesn't mean you're right doesn't mean it'll happen that way it just means you have that information and you can use it to kind of eh, go left or right of what the path was. 
Yeah, it sets up the stakes very clearly for the audience for the next movie by making it clear. Oh, don't think that just because Paul can see the future, any of this is going to be easy. And it's, and it's also just a, such a great violation of fantasy and sci-fi movie heroic storytelling. Paul just killed Obi-Wan before he met him. <laughs> and then met a female Obi-Wan that he's going to fuck. A weird choice, but okay, movie. He traded yeah. up. Can you can you believe though, man? This hasn't happened yet. But can you see any other film beating Dune for best visual effects at the Oscar race? I don't think the Academy can award anything but Dune for best visual effects. Honestly, part I, of that out of the movies that came out this past year, even if that like even if this weren't that incredible, I can't think of anything that comes even close. I'm really confused what? as to why The Eternals wasn't nominated for Best Visual Effects, but Spider-Man Shang-Chi was. was. Oh, Spider-Man was? Yeah, that's, that's pretty good. And Shang-Chi. What? I mean, I'm not saying the effects in Shang-Chi were bad, but they were cartoonish as fuck. Yeah. Very, especially the third act. It gets really over the top. Um, yeah, I adore No Way Home, but that is a comp-together movie if I've ever seen one. Right. Here, we mentioned it earlier. There's something interesting going on where... This was filmed on location, even for these kind of scenes right now, where you're seeing <laughs> stuff that's clearly not real. They they use a process for, I think, Jamie, you said earlier, sand screens. The idea where some of this, they wanted the actual light of the environment to leak in. They didn't want to have to replicate it. So they would film with a body of the ornithopter on top of a mountain outside the desert. So they could get the proper light on them and some of the hints of the background of the desert and film around that and use that as their basis for the CGI they'd have to put on top to extend the universe around these characters and add this vast, never-ending desert. But they actually filmed in several real-world deserts. I think they filmed in Jordan. Uh, I haven't stuck to my notes at all, but they filmed in a couple of different countries with giant deserts. They filmed a lot of this, surprisingly, on set, as it were. Yeah, thankfully, because of the the effects that they innovated here, they were able to do a lot of shit that would have been incredibly unsafe to actually <laughs> do on location, like the sandstorms. Like, the brown screen, like, the sand screen they came up with is essentially just a green screen that's brown. So it yeah. reflects light the way the desert would. So and, impressive, though, because the characters are wearing similar colors to that, which has always been the key for a green or a blue screen. It's supposed to be in such high contrast, you can throw that out and you won't accidentally delete parts of what yeah, the characters are wearing. The mapping's a lot easier. It sounds so simple. Like, you just painted a fucking green screen brown. That is the most difficult fucking thing in the world. Yeah. I'm pretty sure Dune's the only movie that's ever done it. But because they were able to do that, they were able to capture elements of the desert like sand that was being kicked up and basically just copy paste that as the sandstorms and just the sand that's flying around throughout the movie by using using actual elements not making cgi sand which you can never get right but just creating a copy paste dust storm they were able to pull off that kind of stuff like and I, yeah i've never seen that before uh, one thing i want to lay out this is not related to Dune at all. I, I was listening to the commentary for My Soul to Take, the Wes Craven slasher film. And Wes Craven made the movie, and 
the studio decided, hey, we want to make this 3D. So while he's making Screen 4, he had to like go back and forth to check out his other movie being converted. And one of the actors had hair very much like Paul's, where it's kind of frizzy and poofy. Uh, and the people working on the 3D dubbed it the most expensive hair in Hollywood <laughs> because they had to map around all those layers of hair just flapping around to get the layers right. And can you imagine the kind of, I don't know, what, what you call it, rotoscoping? The kind of work you'd have to do to get Paul's hair in all those desert scenes correct so you had the right background behind him at all times when there's gap between all those individual little layers of floppy hair it's 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 mind-boggling the amount of technology and handwork that must have gone in to making this happen i don't understand how dneg doesn't win the oscar because that's tough shit it also definitely helps that the cinematography uh much like uh like we we saw in Blade Runner 2049, everything is lit so realistically, no matter how outlandish the visuals are. Actually, now I think about Rogue One that did this very well from the same cinematographer. Like, like going back uh, to earlier in the movie during like the fall of our uh, of Atreides and all those scenes where those explosions are going off, those are CGI explosions. Like, there's no actual flame on set whenever they're doing that, and yet they went the extra mile to make sure everything was still lit realistically for that, including just throwing a fuck ton of shadows on everybody, so they're only being illuminated by things on the opposite side of the screen. Which, if that were a movie that weren't striving for this kind of look, everything would be illuminated on both sides, so you could actually see <laughs> the actors... But all of this is done almost documentary style, where there are so many sacrifices made for visual realism and for uh, to give this world a tactile feel. Like there are so many more money shots that Villeneuve could have gone for that he held back on just to sell you on this being an actual place that you're in. The fact that there's no money shop of the Benny Gesserit ship and it's just an E.T. flying saucer is amazing. <laughs> to go back, though, you, you not to, to nitpick what you said, but you mentioned documentary style for this. And I would argue this must be the least documentary style of film I've ever seen. There, There's almost – I can't think of any instances of handheld in this movie. It's all very locked down kind of static shots, right? You maybe have a little bit where they pan or zoom in on something, but you don't have – really super snaky camera in most moments. Uh, there's, not too. A, there's not a lot of handheld, but there is a lot of, uh, there's a lot of using the camera during CGI scenes, the way you would film live action. A lot of still like sticking to the rules of what you would actually have been able to shoot on set. If those things were real. Yeah. I think I think that's the difference too. When you're filming CGI, the more you shake the camera around, the more you can maybe hide things. But it's also really an hard to animate between that because you don't have a solid frame of reference, right? You can't just make one model and move it the same way. This movie does a good job of the camera is not shaking all that much. You can see a little bit of bobble in shots, but it's it's not like a guy just has the camcorder in hand. He's walking up the sand dunes behind people. There is no exaggerated jilt to the camera it's it's 
very locked in. I'm amazed at how they they were able to get away with having the masks on the still suits stay on for a pretty good <laughs> chunk of the movie. Yeah. Right. That's also very weird. You just think of like all the Iron Mans were like, no, the mask has to come up. We got to see Robert Downey Jr. We'll find ways to put the camera inside the mask. We can see him. As I remember during Lynch's Dune, that was a gigantic point of contention Herbert had with it. Is no, no, they're supposed to be wearing a top to body suit with none of their skin exposed, because otherwise that defies the entire purpose of the suit. They were able to find like a nice right. middle ground here, where there's like uh, just a lower mask there. It's it still seems like it was something that would conceivably hold mo- moisture in. Yeah, and well, even when they take the off. nose thing a lot, which I yeah, which helps. even when they're bare, like when you see Zendaya just kind of exposing who she is, she still has like the snaky tube up her nose, kind of like the hospital thing. So there, there's still concessions to okay, we have to obey the sci-fi rules we've set down. We can't totally eclipse them and just say it's a it's a normal person. They're fine. It's sweaty out, but they're okay. <laughs> the still suits are a hard thing to adapt because. The entire point of them is to be extremely cumbersome and ugly and uncomfortable to wear. Like, the Fremen all have calluses on the insides of their nose from the little hoses they put in there. Like, all that's supposed to be very painful to be in. It's it's very hard to design something with that kind of, like, thought process in mind. And have it still look good on screen. I'm, I'm amazed that we got this right in two different versions of Dune. <laughs> How do you feel about the shields? Because uh, David Lynch's version of the shields was mm. maybe cartoony, but very clear what was happening. You almost got transformed into a Tron like a Dire Straits. Yeah, like Tron version of, of what a person would be inside of the suit. This version of the suit is kind of the typical... Sci-fi, you get a little bit of a buzz around the character, and then they look normal until something hits them. I think this works a lot better, personally. Yeah, I, I'm amazed at how much, how how big of a headache the shields are to anyone doing a Dune thing, including Herbert. It's like the, the, the I can't imagine putting the action or anything. It's tough. Shields are such a big deal to Dune for seemingly no reason. It's such a big headache. Like the fucking Manovsky particles in Gundam, but not relevant to the plot. <laughs> and we can keep going back to Star Wars. One of the things that cracks me up is Star Wars has year, for years has made the idea, oh, there's vibroblades. That's why they're axes. They're axes that cut through the shields the characters are wearing. Star Wars has never made an effort to show shields on anyone. Like, technically, the... Sh- Just the droids. <laughs> yeah, just, yeah, 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 like the, the droid decals. Uh, but the characters are all supposed to have like, shields on them. That's why blasters don't necessarily kill some characters. It's not the metal on them. They're actually projecting a shield of sorts. That's why guys have knives still, because that's the only way to get through them. Uh, some of the ships are supposed to be like Star Trek, where there's actually protective shields around them. And that's why they don't instantly get blown up the second they're hit with a laser blast. It's It's weird that Star Wars took the path of if we say and hint at it, we don't have to illustrate it. 
Whereas Dune is stuck in this weird shield hell where it's like, we have demonstrated it, and now we have to explain it every scene. And shields are is one of the only, like, out-and-out big, like, technology sci-fi thing. I mean, yeah, Dune it still has plenty of it, but it's, it's kind of a lot of it's basic except the shields, which does feel very, like, futuristic and plays against stuff like the still suits, which... Go, plays into the whole like return to nature anti sci fi stuff going on. But for some reason, no one's ever thought to like, can we just maybe just replace the shields with some other idea? I don't know. Just do something else with the shields. So this I weird get... like vibro thing that happens over everyone's naked body. <laughs> Again, there's there's so much exposition in Dune over how to get past shields. Why we can't wear shields in this particular situation? How can what can this character do, can do about a shield? It's like you can just not have the shields. Just don't do the shields. It's, it's be very no one would have questioned if there were no shields. You know, <laughs> maybe people that knew the books and have, have seen the previous version of Dune, but just them. Audiences in general would have been like, whatever. They don't have shields. Just, like, throw, like, a cool sci-fi knife in there and instead of shields. Let's well, do that. Oh, no, the last time someone tried to do that with Dune, we got the weird sonic weapons from Lynch's <laughs> Dune that make no sense. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, 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 no. Speaking of which, I was amazed because apparently Dune, uh, David Lynch's Dune, he was very excited about the idea of, like, the heart valves which were a thing that the final Dune movie didn't really show and I guess weren't a part of the books. I was very confused when I found that out. I assumed he was excited because that was a book thing he got to implement. Not David Lynch thought it would be very fun if people could just pull heart plugs on people and they would bleed out. Uh, that, was, uh, that was uh, Lynch getting around the uh, Harkonnen molesting a child. He, he still <laughs> wanted that that scene in there, but... He wanted it in a version he could actually film, so he just rips the heart out. The closest to that is it's referenced uh, that some some tribes of Fremen will steal people's water from their bodies in a similar way. That's how uh, the very first Dune script opened, if I remember correctly. Not the one yeah. Herbert wrote, but the one that was like being tossed around that led to Herbert writing a script. Yeah. <laughs> The Fremen just, like, plucked a guy's heart out and took the it, water with it. Yes, it is so heavy metal. It's awesome. It's pretty fucking cool, yeah. Like, that's the <laughs> opening image of that script. It's just the Fremen in top, in head-to-toe still suits, so they look monstrous, just stealing a man's water in the desert and leaving him a husk. I mean, it's still a pretty heavy concept that they hint at in this movie, where they're like, okay, we're going to kill Paul and Lady Jessica... Because we need the water from their bodies. All right, we can be reasoned with. We'll leave Paul. We're going to take all the water out of his mother. Like, they, they, they suggest it without actually acting on it. You don't see it. So the audience's imagination is supposed to take that idea of, how the fuck do they get the water out of these bodies? What are, what are, how are they doing this? Why do they want dead people? What, are, how, what juice are they getting out of these guys? And even when Jamie dies, like they just put him up in a gurney and they kind of haul him across the desert because who knows what they're going to do to him once they get him to one of the sieges. Yeah, there's a, a cool uh, scene in the book. I really hope that they uh, throw into part two where 
uh, Howitt and a couple of sub- surviving Atreides soldiers are found uh, after the fight by the Fremen. And they only have enough water for a couple of them to survive. So one of the Fremen says to Howat, uh, to Howat, it appears you have a water decision to make. And he has to use his Mentat powers to calculate which of the men they can afford to let die. I'm just thinking of uh, South Park, where they have like the the psychic fight, like no, 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 and then the Mentat picks something out of that. But it makes sense. I mean, even looking at the current world, everyone is very concerned about water resources for the future. As it stands right now, places like Las Vegas don't have water, and they can't just import seawater because you have to desalinate it. So they have a lot of contracts to pull water in from the Great Lake regions, which obviously the people there aren't super thrilled about that people in Nevada are just stealing their water so they can water lawns. So you have all these interregional conflicts just deciding what to do with a life-saving resource that we all need. Water theft is one of the biggest, like, secrets of America. Like, that that shit has happened so many times in our history. It's like, oh, we'll just kill your town so this other town in a desert can exist. Yeah. Well, they want green lawns, and it's pretty important they water those lawns every day. So, uh, gonna have to siphon off all of your water. Sorry. If California it's... weren't terraformed, it, it, we would probably would have seceded from the Union about... 50 years ago <laughs> the the simple idea of the almond which takes an incredible amount of water but only really grows out in in the united states i guess in california but is popular among people is it's a superfood that's such a fascinating idea because it's like oh man uh your rural areas have to die so we can take your water to feed these fucking almonds that no one really needs but they're trendy so we're going to grow a bunch of those and steal your resources it's it's the idea of space balls <laughs> and and air in a can made deadly serious. And that's I guess the spice too, right? They have to destroy this planet. It could be terraformed, it could be made into a tropical paradise, but if we leave it real shitty, we generate a lot of spice and it's the only way people will be able to navigate the stars, which is complex and hard. It's the only way we can think of it. So your planet has to suffer forever so we can fuck around in space. It's almost like it's a metaphor for oil or something. What? No, you're kidding. What? That's uh, where Transformers got it as well. <laughs> I was thinking Mad Max the entire time. Oh, God. Actually, that that reminds me. Cody, have you ever heard of, like, why Frank Herbert, uh, like, what sparked the idea for this in, uh, in the first place? No, never, never heard uh, anything about the genesis of the project, as it were. Because Frank Herbert's cousin was Joseph McCarthy. Oh no! What? And he was, and he. Oh. <laughs> Jamie, it's a little late in the game to drop that fucking bombshell. Luckily, oh. you got like fourteen minutes to go, so please explain. Oh yeah, his brother was Joe McCarthy, and they were close and agreed on everything politically up to. 
and Frank Herbert thought that the McCarthy hearings were just the greatest thing in the world. Just, yeah, write out those commies. Until he started Ooh. seeing artists, like his own friends, like being put on the stand. And he realized how evil all of that was. And he realized, oh, you can think that you're fighting absolute evil. And that you're like, you're the light in the world fighting against the darkness. And then just become the monster and not realize it and destroy everything. Like, that happened to somebody I know and love dearly. That kind of happened to me because I was there cheering him on. If that can happen to us, then that can happen to anyone. And then he combined that with some other ideas he had gotten as a journalist just covering uh, problems with shifting sand dunes in California. Because all of the man-made dunes they had out there were killing people by people wandering out there and falling. So all of that coalesced into Dune. It's insane to think... One, I, I've always grown up with the, the thought that McCarthy was grifting people. Like, that, that, was, that was a choice he made to get to power, right? Like, if he, if he gave up communists, if he went with a hot-button issue of the day, he would raise himself up and eventually become president or whatever the fuck he was aiming for. The idea that the people around him thought he really believed it, and so they believed it, is even more terrifying. I oh, mean, yeah. it sucks one way where you know everyone's in, on the grift, and they're just fucking you over because they think it's power. But that's understandable. Everyone thinks, oh yeah, that guy doesn't believe what he says, he just really wants to be in charge. It's almost more terrifying when someone is dedicated to an idea that is terrifying and deadly to the people around them because it Oh, they're convicted at that point. They think I am really a savior. I am, I am a God. I'm enacting the voice of God and you are some sort of trespasser. I hate that more. I don't like the idea that McCarthy was really into what he was saying. I, I liked it more when I thought he was just some cheap trick in a suit who just wanted everyone to believe him. So he would move up the ranks and become vice president or president or whatever the fuck he was going for. Well, that's kind of a thing that, I think Herbert's getting at with Dune is the idea that those two things can exist side by side. Like you can think you're doing good while also doing something that in your heart, you know, is self-serving and wrong. And you can just double think yourself into thinking like, no, 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 no all this is fine. Like it's very easy to believe your own excuses whenever you're doing something harmful that's benefiting you, which I think is what's really work. scary about about leaders in that way. You know, some of the greatest the evils in history is from people thinking they were doing good for humanity. I look at Probably Jim Jones, like that's somebody <laughs> yeah. who th who both knew, was well aware that he was a con man and did not personally believe in God. And also, simultaneously, thought he was a living god. Well, to to, to go back to the, the idea, Jamie, you mentioned of uh, both can be true at the same time. Definitely the idea presented here are there are people who are true believers, and there are people that are willing to go along with the beliefs because it just makes facilitating their their beliefs easier. So you, you kind of get a halfsy split where this guy really thinks he's God and that guy doesn't think you're God, but it's a lot easier for him to do his job if everyone else thinks you're God. So he's going to yeah. encourage it. 
So you get the grifters mixed with the believers, and none of it's great for everyone around them. Yeah, there's a wonderful quote from Herbert uh, about like, that pretty much just summed up Dune in a single sentence, which is, no matter how wonderful your Messiah might actually be, there's the 10 or 12 people around him you also have to worry about. <laughs> it's a pretty good point, really. Well, there's always that idea in my mind that stuck out to me. The uh, the Bible wasn't written by God, which is terrifying. It's like, wait, who did write it? Wait, there's deleted chapters from the Bible? Well, yeah, but we don't talk about those. Those aren't canon. Who, what? Who, who the fuck canon? In canon? <laughs> yeah, in, in the Bible? Wait, so I look at religion is filled with multiple conflicting versions, and that's the canon? The canon is conflicting? Right. That's, that's all terrifying to me. To see there are people that are heart set on those words and think that's how we should govern the world. That's very scary to me. And they probably think the same thing in my point of view. That guy doesn't fucking believe anything. Why should we trust a guy who doesn't have a guiding principle? I don't like that. I don't like that there's difference of opinions. Everyone should just believe me and I'll make a good dictatorship. It'll be very benign. Yeah. And that's why we're electing Cody, the god emperor of Arrakis. You will You'll be all be worm. You'll all be too drunk to care that you live in Tatooine. Too drunk. There goes a crate dragon. Isn't it great? <laughs> Desert power. He said the thing. He said the thing. Drink. Uh, so, Jamie, where, where, where did you, as a person who's read the book, where did you imagine the split is between chapters one and two? Because it seems like every filmmaker goes, this is too big for one movie. And then they kind of either get forced into cramming it into one script or they have to just arbitrarily choose a point where it ends. Is there a spot in your mind in doing the book where it's, hey, this is a good intermission. We can we can cover losses here. It's really not that far away from this. Uh, af in the book, after the death of Janice, uh, they take Paul and Jessica to the CH and they have a holy ritual where she takes spice and becomes their reverend mother. I just always assumed that was going to be the end of it. And like, maybe they throw in like, uh, and then Raban attacks and they escape. And then that's the end of the movie. That kind of sounds like a great opening though, for a part two. It does. Yeah. To me. Mm. Just like someone who doesn't know the book, the idea of a, a big ceremony being the kicking off point for the second movie. And then an action scene where Raban attacks. That sounds like a great way to start things. Again, I haven't read the book. So for all I know, that's a stupid opinion, but <laughs> From from two seconds of understanding, it's like, yeah, I could write a script around that. That seems like a great way to kick things off. Technically, Jessica performing that ritual while pregnant with Paul's sister is the most important thing that ever happens in Dune. Huh. That affects, affects continuity over a thousand years in the future. <laughs> oh. Which is another... Was... Oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I was no, no, say, that's, that, that's another thing to keep in mind when comparing and contrasting like things that were cut out in this and various other versions of Dune. Herbert wrote the first three books pretty much at once. So a lot of stuff that happens in Dune is a non sequitur and is just setting up things two, three or seven books in the future. Oh, wow. I didn't, I didn't realize they were all written about the same time. I kind of assumed 
it was it was almost like a dark tower thing where he were one and a couple of years passed and he is like oh there's a man so he wrote another i didn't know he had really had almost a trilogy kind of set down oh yeah the like the the core story of dune is just paul's story which is told over three books the third one of which is absolutely bug nut and i i can understand if villeneuve just wants to end with a messiah then so if i understand it right paul turns into a giant worm at some point right like he goes into the desert as a blind man or something and then eventually is brought back in the fold everyone gets that spoilers to people who have not read the books like me okay i i feel i feel comfortable spoiling this because this is never going to be made in a movie and even the sci-fi channel version of god emperor of dune didn't do this so do Paul's son, Leto II, uh, as a child is uh, is kidnapped by Paul's enemies and they try to OD him on Spice, which instead makes him... As you do. Just makes him a super Kitsop Satirop. And he decides as a boy to, ta- to, to make the transformation that Paul was too cowardly uh, to take and all of the all of the baby worms in the desert attach themselves to him to form body armor and he gets superpowers and jumps around the desert like spider-man that's the dumbest thing i've ever heard what everyone hates god emperor of dune there's a reason he's only middle of news doing this <laughs> oh okay and, I didn't realize there was worm armor involved here. <laughs> and then after saving the day, Leto says, I will now become an evil tyrant who will terrorize the galaxy for 1,000 years because that is what's on the path that Paul t- that uh, that Paul avoided. And then we get the fourth book, which is just... <laughs> this is my favorite thing that's ever been committed to paper. <laughs> God Emperor of Dune is all about a thousand years in the future where Leto II has transformed into a giant worm that rides around the desert on a big fat person cart. And then he gets horny and he wants a wife. So they get one of the one of the ladies on Arrakis to become the bride of the worm. Does she become a worm? No, she and a clone of Duncan Idaho kill him by throwing him into a, a river and he dissolves while going, No! What? You've lost Mike and myself. What? 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 Yeah, clones become a really big deal in the later Dune books because Herbert couldn't yeah. deal with letting go of the characters. So eventually... Arrakis I was going to say, you threw ex- a lot at us when you're like, Duncan Idaho's back as a clone. Also, <laughs> there's worms. Every single Dune book has a has a Duncan Idaho clone. And it's always a different <laughs> clone. <laughs> there, There's like three minutes left of credits, Jamie. I don't think I can ask you to explain this properly. So we're going to move on. Oh, and uh, in one of the last Dune books, Arrakis is exploded like the planet of the apes, and the Bene Gesserit leave with vials containing the DNA of the entire cast of Dune. And then the next book is all about the cast of Dune as babies. Uh, they they made a Muppet Babies Dune? Everyone calls that Muppet Babies in space, yes. Uh, <laughs> what end? Like, what, what, what do you get out of that? Uh, also, Someone has to claim Frank Herbert's son so we can get a, a fucking conclusion on this, apparently. Also, in Heretics of Dune, which is the horny Dune novel, uh, Duncan Idaho is cloned so he can have sex 
with e- these evil assassin ladies because and turn them good and make them serve the Benny Gesserit because Duncan Idaho's dick is so magnificent. When he has sex with you, you go from bad to good. That's canon in Dune. Okay, is I believe that why they made the Mamoa, other? Though. Is that why they made the other clones of Duncan Idaho apparently sterile or incapable of fucking? Oh, yeah, I shouldn't because... say sterile because, like, you can still fuck if you you know you just can't pass seed. Apparently, the other ones couldn't get hard. I there's a lot here, Jamie. You're putting a lot on the plate. Okay, the, you got the, a minute and a half to explain the horniness of Dune. Oh well, the, when the got when Leto the second, the uh, man inside the worm, first cloned Duncan Idaho to amuse his sense of nostalgia. And that clone of Duncan Idaho killed himself because he was a thousand years in the future talking to the god emperor of a religion where he's a holy figure despite just being a dude with a sword. Uh, Leto just keeps cloning him over and over and over to to breed him so he can have his family of Duncan Idaho's. (laughs) There's a lot going on in this credit sequence. Like, uh, a lot more than I was prepared to accept in my mind. If anyone was wondering what the deal with Duncan Idaho was, Duncan Idaho is Frank Herbert's gigantic deconstruction of what a virile male action hero is supposed to be. In the the fourth book, his villain has him cloned so he can be an action hero for him and be be an action figure to play out. Uh, Like... the memories that Paul inside of his head has. It's very interesting sci-fi storytelling that you shouldn't actually put down on paper because it's a bad idea. Yeah, it's idea. a really great idea for something else and not done in any of the ways you just described. I am regretful I asked Jamie to explain post-Dune storytelling. God Emperor of Dune makes me so happy. It's It has almost no plot and is mostly just chapters upon chapters of Leto II going on Steve Ditko monologues about politics, because that's when <laughs> Herbert got real libertarian. <laughs> oh, this, no. This is really oh, usurped God. that time I explained X-Men to Cody. This is, is awful. I didn't... Ex- I, I thought Dune was pretty straightforward. A guy turns into a worm. How much complexity can there be in the desert worm man? I mean, we and all turn into lot. worms inside. There's a well, scene the worms in cha- will someday eat you, and they'll eat you too. It's fine. We're all worm food in the end. I understand that. It's great. We're all level dirt. But this is a little much. I don't want to be a Duncan Idaho in ten thousand years from now in a I have no mouth and I must scream situation where I like Robocop to myself out of things. I don't. There's a lot here. I don't like it. There's a scene in Chapter House Dune where the Reverend Mothers of the Bene Gesserit explain to the protagonist why having a government with three branches is inherently wrong. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, America right now is kind of, yeah. <laughs> kind of demonstrating why, like, the three branches Ro- seem Ro- nice Robert and may ain't have been, doing their like, job. a on the money on that one, but... I'm not, I'll, I'll be damned if I say a libertarian was right. <laughs> Folks, this has been Dune and Dune Plus and, and Dune Max and... So many other streaming services of Dune, I can't even describe because the they're past my understanding. Can we call ourselves that now? The Pulps of Dune? Awful. I hate it, Mike. Uh, it's better Jesus. than anything you've said. Go ahead and say your dude, goddamn Dune pun again. How? 
Mike, I don't want to move past the fact that you called all my pickup lines dry, and I'm mad about that, but you're not wrong. As a single lonely person in the very moist, horny world, Mike has struck a killing blow. He has cut me to the quick. That was a sentence you just said, and we all have to live with it now. That's right. If I'm going down, you motherfuckers have to, have have to, to hear my words exiting your mouth too. and going into our brains. And... Is this Cody trying to release a deadly gas to destroy us <laughs> with his last breath? This is Pontypool. My words are poison. Don't translate these. <laughs> Folks, if you want more of this garbage, Jesus Christ, what's wrong with you? You can find more of us at Box Office Pulp. We're on Facebook on Box Office Pulp. You can find us on Twitter at Box Office Pulp. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Box Office Pulp all the way. Uh, Google Play. Amazon. Google Play, Google Music. Amazon, sure. Other Box places. Office Pulp. Yeah. Other places. You can find us at those. We're around. If you want to contact me personally and be like, Jesus Christ, this guy's horny and his pickup lines are bad, I'm at BopWatch1. The number not spelled out. <sighs> Mike, Jamie, do you want to give your own plugs for your own uh, social media services? Or would you I'm rather hide in shame? Just, I'm on Twitter at Lucky Deck Napier. Just go ahead do do that. We got to get the fuck out of here. I'm at Mondo Funky. Who cares? Folks, that's a wrap. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. I joke, but you're great. <sighs> Let's get the hell out of here. You get more out of life when you go out to a movie. Please remember to replace the speaker on the post when you leave the theater. So, like, worm armor, like, a... 90s extreme comic book character? Yes, he gets ar worm armor made out of hundreds of baby worms that make him rock hard. So, wait, 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 wait. You rock hard? Yeah, yes, he's like bulletproof and shit because of how hard the hide of the the baby worms okay, are. Okay, okay, I swear to God, I thought you meant that it made him violently erect. No, no, no. Giant, he fucks the world, he fucks the world, he's the god emperor of Arrakis with his heart on five miles wide. That's the real desert power. It's made very clear in God Emperor of Doom that Leto II doesn't have a penis. It's brought up every time a character meets him. They ask him if the worm has a dick, and he says no. That's why his bride betrays him, because she falls in love with Duncan Idaho, who has a big penis. I'm turning the fucking recorder off. We're done. This goes back to what I was saying before about Herbert not writing women characters well. This is Box Office Pulp Guy, and this has been a Pulp Podcast production. Now please, 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 put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger and say goodnight. And now, on with the show. <laughs>